0: director's club with brad and al we are podcasting as one of the sites and podcasts of the now playing network here in each episode of the director's club we take a look at the films of a single director their legendary classics breakout hits personal labors of love and hidden gems that could be found amongst their filmography you can never tell what themes and connections to other films can come up when you take a look at a director's body of work come join us on the film journey. Howdy, you guys. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And in this episode, we are going on quite a varied and fascinating trek of the work of American director John Frankenheimer.
1: This really was fascinating because I think we all have our favorite Frankenheimer films and they all seem to be clustered in this period of the 60s where frankenheimer was on quite the roll. i think we're gonna talk about five films he does in a row that are to one extent or another pretty extraordinary but then after that he becomes very inconsistent maybe not uncoincidentally that's when he shifts to color and he seems to be a guy who's a lot more comfortable in black and white yeah it's a very interesting turn and
0: We're going to try to find what happened with his streak, which I would actually put in as one of the best streaks that a filmmaker has put in through a body of work, rivaling some of the uh, runs that Hitchcock and Kurosawa did. But I think even through his misfires, one of the things that I really like about all of Frankenheimer's work is kind of similar in a way that you may not find a charitable saying. I kind of find him to be a little bit of like a Nicolas Cage <laughs> type of filmmaker. Now, what, I, what do I mean by that is that Cage has had great performances. He's had titanically terrible performances. But with very, very rare exception, do I find that Nicolas Cage phones in a performance? And this is something I find of, true of Frankenheimer. He seems to always have his foot on the uh, filmmaker's
1: accelerator a little more than your average director. Right. So even when we get into uh, the bad movies, they're often just so extraordinarily silly and misguided that you could still get some kind of bad movie entertainment out I-
0: of it. Exactly. There's some car crash level enjoyment to <laughs> come from many of these films. And this kind of propulsive... Nature I find is really, really interesting, especially in comparison with one of our first ever podcasts about Danny Boyle. Uh, Danny Boyle is a director who's also known for putting in a certain kind of energy to almost every one of his films. So I'm like looking when I was watching the Frankenheimer films, I was comparing how Frankenheimer's work compares with Boyle's. And Boyle seems to me that Boyle is trying more things and trying more different things in each film but he's he's constantly thinking of how can i make this interesting mm-hmm. whereas i find the energy that frankenheimer brings to his films is more intrinsic he just cuts better and angles better to give more give more of an energy and to highlight things and when he highlights things especially of a claustrophobic and darker nature it can work wonders and if it's something that's a little bit goofy it can become magnificently goofy.
1: Yeah. Frankenheimer's energy is more extreme than Boyle's. Boyle had uh, this this great run of film in the 90s that we talked about on the first episode you and I did of The Director's Club. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he's ever done films as great as Frankenheimer's best films or as bad as Frankenheimer's worst films. Yes. It's kind of more of a focus to the
0: energy that frankenheimer brings that enhances things in a more direct way and as opposed to the more expansive way that boyle does it i think a lot of that energy was both maybe inspired
1: or directed during his television work he was part of the first generation of film directors to get their start in the then new medium of television. So other directors who did the same are Sidney Lumet, George Roy Hill, and, and Robert Mulligan, who all did these live shows back in the late 50s. And luckily, some of the examples from Frankenheimer, you can watch on the Criterion's collection, uh, The Golden Age of Television which includes two episodes of Playhouse 90 from 1957 and 1958, one an adaptation of The Comedian, and the other, uh, The Days of Wine and Roses. Which was later made into a movie directed by Blake Edwards starring Jack Lemmon.
0: But this is the first instance of Days of Wine and Roses with Cliff Robertson and Piper Laurie as the two leads. I have to concur with with recommending you take a look about these two episodes in particular off the Criterion edition because these give you just a hint of what Frankenheimer's energy level was all about if you guys listening are familiar with the um two film Birdman which is meant to all be filmed in one take basically imagine Birdman being filmed live that's the stunning achievement of of both of these episodes which is not even done with just two people on a set and then two people moving to another set. But the camera is constant in constant motion. And especially in The Comedian, there's all sorts of crowds and throngs and camera equipment being moved back and forth. And all of this had to be timed to the last moment. And you could not allow for a
1: single mistake. Now they did have one advantage that uh one take films do not, which is they had commercial breaks. So that gave them a degree of leeway. But Correct. it's still, you're 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 so right, so impressive to watch the urgency of of live television and knowing whatever's happening is just exactly what's going to happen come hell or high water we're giving frankenheimer a lot of credit there but there was an entire stable of directors doing this exact kind of thing in early television
0: Mm -hmm. but that particular type of television production that seat of your pants thrills and tension combined with just this feeling of creativity of just trying this particular wild zooms or crazy angles or the first instance of a common motif of Frankenheimer where a person's face fills up almost the entire side of the screen. These are started to get manifested in these two
1: episodes. You can see this on the Criterion. Edition. There's even a scene in the Comedian because it's about a show within a show. So you see the actors, but then you also See the actors on a small television screen in the foreground, which is something we're going to witness again in a later uh, Frankenheimer film. Yes, and they're also notable for their incredibly heightened dramatic intensity.
0: The comedian, in particular, this may be an unfair comparison. I would almost make a comparison that it's a, an episode of the Dick Van Dyke TV show <laughs> if it was directed by Iranian director Oshkar Ferrati, All these writers and the main comedian star but there's so much great dynamics in the social way in a in a social uh area in a family area in a business area and they're all into such rich conflict that it's uh, quite a stunning
1: achievement. Yeah, and it even manages to make uh, Mickey Rooney give a good performance which uh, I find to be a rare occurrence, <laughs> but I got I got to give him credit credit in this one. Uh as a egomaniacal uh sociopath, he nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he Somehow got the nuances
0: of that particular <laughs> personality just right. A quick story on that that, was, that Frankenheimer mentioned on some of, the, some of the bonus features is that Mickey Rooney, when they would rehearse, he would keep making entire lines, sometimes paragraphs of dialogue and improvised, and he would not stick to the script. And Frankenheimer finally just tried to drag him off to the side and said, look, Mickey, I just got to tell you, at, see this shot? This shot says... When Mickey Rooney says this line, then you cut to a close up of Mickey Rooney's face. And I can't do that if I don't get the line (laughs) and says that Rooney was no perfect from then on.
1: (laughs) So uh, after years of doing this television work, Frankenheimer did move on to film. His uh, first one was a very low budget film called The Young Stranger. But the first one we're going to discuss is The Young Savages. it takes place in east harlem where the two teen where two teenage gangs the white thunderbirds and the puerto rican horsemen regularly clash when three of the thunderbirds are accused of killing a blind puerto rican kid bert lancaster is recruited to prosecute the youths from his old neighborhood and somehow find justice in it all the first 10
0: minutes of the young savages is one of the cooler intros to a director that you can find, especially if you like Frankenheimer from his most well-known films or from his start in the American Playhouse series, because it is so viscerally energetic and creative. It is just this super hyped up bop level jazz score in cinematic terms as these these three ruffians are skittering around for all these different parts of uh new york city and the camera keeps jumping back from their pouty expressions to their the strut of their legs as they synchronize this is decades before the um saturday night fever uh montage
1: but it has That, that same energy that is true however it is the exact same year as another film that has that same energy, hmm. which I think anyone who watches this film will find a little familiar, which is the magnificent West Side Story. The Jets are introduced through this amazing choreography and score. It's more musically inclined, but still, I was just reminded of the West Side Story scenes as I was watching a similar kind of introduction for the young savages although it, it wasn't stolen they came out the same year <laughs> <laughs> amazing how
0: sometimes these cinematic synchronicities can come about right and it turns from there as there is a a blind person on a stoop who has these glasses and he gets attacked by these three youths as they attack him you see the attack through the reflection of the blind kid's glasses
1: Yeah, Frankenheimer is constantly looking for creative ways to shoot scenes. And his go-to method, which is featured here, but is just going to increase in both frequency and effect, is the use of the wide-angle lens.
2: Mm. So
1: when you use a wide-angle lens, it creates an almost eerie kind of close-ups that fill the screen... It gives you deep focus, and depending on how wide you make the angle of your lens, it could really distort reality. So even at this first major film, we're seeing creative uses of these experimental techniques. Mm -hmm. I think you made a key phrase here upon that. It's a cinematic
0: technique and it is purpose does meant to distort reality. I think a lot of value that you get out of young savages and out of some subsequent uh, Frankenheimer films comes out of that very technique because the film is most effective in the sense that it pushes us as a viewer out of our comfort zone.
1: It's part of the juvenile delinquent genre that was very popular at the time. In the culture, there's a lot of this this focus on uh, teenagers and all the trouble they cause. But very rarely in these films do we get as sympathetic a portrait of minority communities as happens here.
0: Frankenheimer's camera is so good in this film at just delivering the kind of threat of these gangs as they clash across the course of the film and in the claustrophobic locations, which cause the tensions to
1: simmer. Right. So I think that's the good news, but there's bad news too. And I don't consider Young Savages to be part of the uh, great run that we referred to earlier, because the plot goes pretty quickly off the rails, mostly because it doesn't understand what the job of a prosecutor is. (laughs) (laughs) The prosecutor in this film is played by Burt Lancaster, who will become a Frankenheimer regular. He's fine in this. He doesn't do anything extraordinary as he will in in the next film we discuss. But... He's basically acting like a combination of a cop and a private eye, just going going into these neighborhoods and kicking doors down and interrogating everybody. And I'm like, what is your job here, Bert? <laughs> <laughs> right. When you're watching the assistant
0: district attorney, he's going into these tough neighborhoods where everyone is really interested in telling this guy their life story despite the fact that it might actually incriminate them and put them in jail. (laughs) (laughs) And it makes you pine for the gritty urban realism that you would find in a Perry Mason episode, much less like a Law and Order episode. (laughs) You're so
1: right. Do you really think that's what a district attorney does? And he's also completely got a conflict of interest. He used to date the mother of one of the accused kids, played by Shelley Winters. Now that immediately should kick him off the case, right? It's also <laughs> something everybody knows. Like the, the 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 mayor is telling him, "Are you sure this is going to be okay?" Right. right. And and, and Lancaster is like, "Don't worry about it. I I can put my feelings aside." Mm-hmm. But fortunately or unfortunately,
0: he goes and does five or six more hideously inappropriate
1: things as the movie goes on. Right, we switch then to courtroom drama mode. Right, which I'm definitely not a fan of. Well, I I like those when they're done well, but all the energy from the earlier street scenes are pretty much dissipated by the time we we get into the courtroom. And then, because... We've been watching this kind of journey that Lancaster has gone through in trying to figure out who's innocent and who's guilty. He in the middle of the trial, basically switches from prosecuting to defending. Mm. He completely obliterates any kind of (laughs) professionalism of his job description. Right, right, right. Basically, imagine like a
0: Law & Order episode where you have the End scene from Al Pacino's and Justice for All happen in the middle, and yet somehow the trial is continuing <laughs> as opposed right. to just as opposed to everyone stopping everything. Get 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 this guy out of here. <laughs> this includes the fact that his boss, the district attorney, is sitting next to him as he's throwing his own case, which is stopping his political ambitions right as it's happening but
1: now to be fair he does try to fire him but <laughs> apparently it doesn't take <laughs> because right. it's burt lancaster you don't fire Bert lancaster come on <laughs> yeah Bert lancaster
0: will tell you when he's going to be fired <laughs> this sense of you guys don't really know how this process works that was just give a hint at an earlier part of the movie now comes across as if these are like small children who think what things happen in this <laughs> mysterious courtroom are like, including like Burt Lancaster telling a witness, one of these boys uh, did the crime. Can you go over to those boys and grab them on the shoulder and be able to recognize them that way. And the judge and everyone lets her do this, Mm -hmm. which causes her to attack one of the boys, which is exactly why you don't let that kind of stuff happen. (laughs) (laughs) It also features an absolutely criminal bit of negligence where some very valuable laboratory testing is just not even examined by Bert Lancaster right, right. until the last <laughs> minute. <laughs> yeah. It all turns out very, very silly that only becomes enhanced by both the fact that like it's trying to be this kind of social message movie about young criminals in a multicultural community, and also that part of Lancaster's backstory is that he is trying to hide his Italian roots
1: None of which is evident from Bert's performance or, in fact, that he doesn't look Italian in right. any way. And, and that will come up again. <laughs> and, by the way, these three kids on trial are a motley bunch, too. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. The most evil one is also the most balding 17-year-old yeah, uh, I've ever no witnessed. No
0: kidding, right? <laughs> uh, is,
1: is doing some Dennis Weaver in Touch of Evil type oh, over Nice, nice.
0: <laughs> I, was, I was looking at him going like... I can't believe I'm watching like a version of Paul Dano playing Nicolas Cage playing Elvis from Wild at Heart. That's that's <laughs> the impression that I got. And he is also one of the most easily goaded member in gang history, as when Burt Lancaster calls him a coward, causes him to literally shriek around and be tied up and gagged in the courtroom. Again, who could have who, seen it coming? Yeah, uh, not part of the yeah. jurisprudence procedure from as far as I could <laughs> tell. So that's a little unfortunate that it gets so goofy by the end. But even in this early film, you do get a hint of Frankenheimer using his technique and the technique being effective at adding tension and a
1: feeling of discomfort to a social situation addressing the country. Well, the criminal justice system will also play a big role in the next film. Let's see if he does any better. Right. That would be Birdman of
0: Alcatraz, released in 1962.
3: Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life. You were only waiting for this moment to rise.
0: starring Burt Lancaster as Robert Stroud, a killer sentenced to life in prison and solitary confinement. As the years pass, he develops an interest in birds and is allowed to keep them as pets in his cell. With nothing but time on his hands, he devotes himself to bird medicine and
1: eventually becomes a world-renowned expert in the field. So this starts the run. Birdman of Alcatraz is great, and it's great in a very different way then the kinetic way we've been seeing from Frankenheimer and also from Burt Lancaster's career. Uh, Lancaster has given amazing performances in the past. One of the best, I think being uh, his villainous role in the sweet smell of success. But the thing about Lancaster is he's always big. He's always larger than life. And he kind of starts out that way in this movie as well playing a uh, a killer who is antisocial and doesn't know how to function with people and even ends up killing a prisoner and guard while already in prison leading to a lifetime sentence but then the character gets older and Lancaster conveys a lot as the older Robert Stroud with a much more introspective performance. He's in solitary confinement. He doesn't have the means to uh, socialize or to express himself in any way. And so when he, when, when he does find this bird in the prison yard, he takes it in for a pet cares for it. The movie takes place over a number of years and With each scene, you see the character deepening and becoming more interesting and more of a human being. I don't particularly have as high an opinion of Lancaster as you might.
0: This, on the other hand, was startling to me to see how well Lancaster shows a deepening, more thoughtful growth of a human being and presenting it mostly internally. Lancaster's presence, as you so aptly put it, is such a great contrast with the delicacy he has to do in taking care of these birds. There's moments where Frankenheimer films just the sheer careful way of how he assembles these bird cages and how he Oh, like has to hold the bird's neck just so, so a bird can receive an eyedropper's worth of food Mm -hmm. that actually becomes to me, one of these pure cinema moments. (laughs) It's this big imposing guy, just giving a level of care to this small creature that just gets this feeling, but how this feeling changes his character is what really puts the movie above. Because he's, like you said, he's a guy who's fighting against the system. And one of the cool things about the film is how that intensity and the feeling that he was fighting within himself is then put to not just a more productive use, but it still
1: is not bending to the system. Right, it just changes from physically fighting... To intellectually fighting, one of the subplots is his relationship uh, with the warden in his first prison, which, by the way, isn't yet Alcatraz. That won't happen till uh, near the end of the film. The warden is played by Carl Malden. He's a by-the-book character, and already sees trouble in Lancaster. And to be fair, at this stage in his life, he re- he really is trouble, but. As Lancaster grows, Malden takes a long time to see that he's not dealing with the same kind of man anymore. And one of the the things I think the film does so wonderfully is is convey the passage of time. The reason it's believable that this – well, I mean, it's a true story, but the reason in the film it's believable that this man with no education can become a – world-renowned expert is that we see that he has nothing else to do once he's focused he could he spends every moment of what would otherwise be a completely empty life learning about caring for birds in a lesser film there would be a lot more emotional attachment between like him and a single bird when it gets sick but but it's much more realistic than that because it's like yeah birds get sick and die But he's using these experiences as ways to learn more about them and to care for them better and eventually gain this amazing amount of wisdom about bird medicine. Mm -hmm. The birds
0: are just, I find, a really cool symbol for, I wouldn't say innocence, but this sort of spirit, sort of an animating spirit, because not only when... Lancaster's efforts soon allow for the birds to be a presence among many of the prisoners, right? including a really cool turn by Telly Savalas as his fellow prisoner. He has clearly no idea how to take care of the bird right? Right. (laughs) but he's still hey what happened to my bird (laughs) hey I think he's sick can you do something do something buddy
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) and Telly Savalas actually was also in The Young Savages uh, as a police officer so he's kind of a regular in these uh, early Frankenheimer films but it's definitely a great contrast between the kind of uh, introspection that, that Lancaster's character is going to build and kind of the more standard lifer that uh, telly Savalis represents
0: the way of how frankenheimer and lancaster hold the performance of stroud's character back is really nicely done it's this incredible level of restraint because lancaster's such a presence that you expect that for example when a lot of his birds have gone sick you expect the big raging as all the bird cages are going to get destroyed and yet, that's not where the movie goes. Every setback, Lancaster's Robert Stroud character uses as an excuse to start again, to build. It's like a guy who's always going like two steps forward and then one and three quarter steps back. And you're so right that you feel
1: the passage of time as, as this clockwork thing of moving forward and back, forward and back. And when he is transferred to Alcatraz, he's no longer allowed to have the birds. So he then <laughs> switches his area of interest to prison reform, which uh, the the system likes none at all.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. And that harkens to the excellent dynamic that Lancaster's character has with Carl Malden's character. Because... Maldon's character is not an ogre by any means. He's not like the mirrored sunglasses wearing officer from cool hand Luke, say, who's just there to go and oppress the prisoners. You see how his character really feels. His mission is to rehabilitate, but his version of rehabilitation is something that Lancaster's character rebels against, but in a totally different way than just doing when doing hunger strikes or
1: It's a life-affirming way of rebelling. Right. He's looking to assert his individuality, which is a point, I think, that Frankenheimer will make again in a few years in the movie Seconds. Great point, man. Great point. (laughs) Now, there's another interesting uh, relationship in the movie, which is between Lancaster and his mother, played by Thelma Ritter also known for big over-the-top usually comic performances probably most famously in uh rear window yeah but she is also dialed completely down for this and it becomes a very believable dynamic of this domineering mother who puts everything she has into, first of all, saving his life so he doesn't get executed, and then trying to get him out of solitary confinement. But it's so fascinating what happens when he finally stands up to her. Yes. And that's
0: such a great re-examination of the idea of who confines who in whose world, because it's a great irony that he befriends someone due to his bird expertise that now is able to sell these products. And part of the way they would do it is that she becomes his wife. And this is what breaks the relationship between him and his mother. Something where this bond that we had seen was just one of the most powerful connections between a mother and her son. Something that might also come up with uh, future <laughs> Frankenheimer film. Yes. <laughs> then gets broken and it's interesting why it gets broken in that the birds are a way of him opening up to an experience even outside of this real strong sense of family that he had
1: when he entered the prison and the birds also have a symbolic value of being helpless alone in cages which can be analogous to life in the prison system yeah and
0: frankenheimer's direction
1: enhances this to a wonderful degree
0: the lensing that he'd used in his earlier efforts really enhances the claustrophobia of what happens in this film but it's sort of a warmer tone to it because you know maybe in a similar way about like how some of the eggs who you watch hatch in mm-hmm. that maybe you needed this kind of confined environment in order for a person to grow much like how the baby chick gets the nourishment from the environment of the egg. Something maybe I'm re- maybe I'm reaching a little bit, but I, but I find it's not a matter where it's oppressive and way so many jailhouse films are. I, that's my impression of it.
1: No, I, I agree. And there's all kinds of opportunities for Frankenheimer to, utilize his camera work in a much more intense way than he does. And, and even though there's some expressionism going on, it's dialed down from the other films of the period. It's, it's a more realistic film. It's a more deliberately paced film and it's a quieter film. And I think that as we talk about films, we probably might like even more than this one. They're so very in-your-face that it's refreshing here to be shown something that manages to really walk this delicate balance so wonderfully. Exactly. Exactly.
2: All the cards were held by you There was nothing I could do as I sat alone, staring at the telephone
1: The Manchurian Candidate, released in 1962, is based on the novel by Richard Condon, which follows two Korean War vets who are held as prisoners of war, played by Frank Sinatra and Lawrence Harvey. The latter's dominating mother, played by Angela Lansbury, is married to a senator, and using her son's hero status, hopes to get him a vice presidential nomination. Sinatra is having nightmares, and comes to believe his memories of their time as prisoners may have a darker meaning. Now, Brad, I feel I just have to tell you
0: that this is the kindest, warmest, <laughs> bravest,
1: uh, best movie about POWs I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. So next you'll be asking about a little game of, well, well, hold off just a moment, please. Right. We we need to offer a massive <laughs> spoiler warning At this point, everything we're about to say is a spoiler because this is a film that goes in so many unexpected directions. You think there's a twist, and that's the spoiler. But no, there's going to be another twist and a twist on that. And no matter what you say about the Manchurian Candidate, you will remain surprised until the very end. Right, but before we get into
0: really deep, spoiled territory, I want to unequivocally recommend that if you haven't seen Manchurian Candidate, check it out, because it does one of the most wonderfully engaging, thoughtful, bizarre, and potent wild rides upon the kind of paranoia that um, was steeped in the country at the time
1: that's ever been made on the movie screen. For me, this is by far Frankenheimer's best work. I think it works not only as a perfect suspense film, but also an incredibly prescient political film that had really important things to say about its own time, but maybe more impressive. It may apply even more... To our own time. (laughs) And how, unfortunately. Right. Now, I do want to clear up a bit of an urban legend that has built up around the film. A lot of people think that the film was taken out of circulation due to the Kennedy assassination, which happened uh, the year after the film was released. Turns out that's not true at all. The Manchurian Candidate did appear on television a few times uh, in the 60s and 70s and w- was never hidden anywhere. But when it was finally released on video in the late 80s, it had been unseen by a, a, a whole new generation for so long that it appeared to be this strange, fresh relic that had time traveled into 1988 and it can do that to any time because it looks so immediate. Frankenheimer has mastered the black and white composition. There's even more deep focus and wide angle lens shots going on here. As the plot descends into this whirl of paranoia it visually does the same thing.
0: Yeah, it's the fun house delirium of the last 10 minutes of Orson Welles' Lady from Shanghai for yes. me. <laughs> but unlike that film, which revels in just what you can do on a camera or a film image, here it's so tied, so active to the kind of heightened paranoia and tensions which seemed to inform that culture that's why i completely agree with you that when it got re-released everyone was like wow for it because whereas other films such as like the parallax view are also very effective at depicting paranoia there it's more studied but there's no remove to how weird the
1: feeling you get out of manchurian candy it leaps off the screen at you well let's look at kind of the first big reveal because it demonstrates how story and visual filmmaking can can work perfectly and we we go inside frank sinatra's dream and we see this uh uh troop who've been captured and are being held in manchuria but they seem to be in this gardening conference with a bunch of sweet old ladies. And what they're saying, though, the women are really what their captors would be saying. The camera then circles without cutting from the prisoners to the audience watching this spectacle. And as the circle happens, you see that they are their captors. They are the Korean and Chinese communist leaders. And that the woman who has been talking about flowers is actually their head captor who is brainwashing them. I look
0: at this sequence and I think Godard or other incredibly adventurous filmmakers would have just like angrily ripped up there on um, <laughs> a celluloid at just how brilliant this does at getting competing images and putting us off center. It is so cool, inspired, and very, very weird to not just have them be, say, fellow soldiers, mm-hmm. but the most innocent values of the kind of picket fence apple pie america that these uh soldiers believe they're dealing with
1: only to find that it couldn't be more the case and it's not being weird for weirdness sake what they're really doing is providing a high level of complex storytelling they have to fill us in on the narrative. And instead of just telling us, like having Frank Sinatra say, hey, I dreamed this, instead we're given this visual feast of this strange, surrealistic scene that also tells your story. Exactly.
0: I don't believe there has ever been a better depiction in film of the principle that George Orwell said in 1984 of double think, the ability and the tension you get out of having to hold two competing thoughts in your head at the same time. <laughs> by showing it in this way, that it's like a continuous curve of the camera, and then by cutting into like having very nice ladies say incredibly horrific orders and commands to these soldiers, you are put in that, he- in this headspace to really understand just this internal conflict that the Lawrence Harvey character is going through and in fact what the country is going through in terms of believing that you have these pure pristine ideals but there's just these incredibly dark th- impulses
1: that are not just hiding under the ideals but the ideals help drive them the context of both the novel it's based on and the film is a response to the McCarthy era when Hollywood directors, writers, actors were blacklisted, not allowed to work because of their alleged association with communists who in this paranoid fifties era, demagogues like uh, Senator McCarthy would destroy lives and careers by just uttering the word communist and he has his own fictional version in this film which is raymond shaw's mother and his stepfather shaw played by lawrence harvey is being brainwashed to become an assassin his mother is brainwashing her husband (laughs) to become a character assassin and to <laughs> nice. destroy all these lives by accusing people of being communist. He is this dim-witted Senator played by James Gregory and the, the chemistry between him and Lansbury is just perfect. And Angela Lansbury creates a villain for the ages Hannibal Lecter has nothing (laughs) on Angela Lansbury as Raymond's mother. A mother that is more enveloping than the one in Birdman of Alcatraz. Yes. Maybe as enveloping as the animated mother in Pink Floyd's The Wall. (laughs) I think her performances
0: gets to the heights and maybe is the equal of Lady Kaeda from Akira Kurosawa's run. Yes. She is so, so, so far above the league of her husband. It's so evident, as is her rage upon needing to use this drunken fool Mm -hmm. as a way to move forward her own ambitions and her own desires of mastery and control. It leads to a very sickening but inspired a double twist at near the end of the movie when you realize how much control she is exerting and for what reason on some source that even she was not mm-hmm. expecting. So it gives an absolutely incredible twist on the Lady Macbeth formula and goes into some like Greek dramas as well. The way the movie explores the weirdness of... What we think is the patriotic, the pure American thing to do versus what's really happening is just, I find, masterfully done in this film. The tone is very difficult to keep. And yet, from the, from the transformative scene you described onwards, I feel it never flags. Mm-hmm. It's disturbing. It's off-putting. At times, it's actually very funny. At times, it's funny in a Doctor Strange love level where the humor catches in your throat when you realize what's really going on. Right. <laughs> and at times, it's very heartbreaking, especially in the persona of the Lawrence Harvey character, which is an absolute inspired move to make him the most unsympathetic, unlikable, ostensible hero
1: of almost any movie ever made. <laughs> it, it's off-putting at first because it does leave you kind of wondering what, what Lawrence Harvey is doing with this performance because he is so kind of strange and cold, but it turns out that those very qualities are expertly woven into his story arc. So yes. it, it, So what appears to be maybe a a one-note performance at the beginning turns into an incredibly complex one by the end. And maybe it's not even necessarily of Harvey's performance
0: so much as that the film is so effective at showing how this guy never really had a chance. Right. That his options were always so limited, especially with a mother like that even before he ever got captured by the koreans
1: right it's like he is being he has been they've been trying to brainwash him all his life before they actually <laughs> yeah yes. found the scientific way to do it
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's really really well put by the way i want to pass along that i have a pet theory about uh lawrence harvey's raymond shaw character in that i really believe that He was the inspiration for Principal Seymour Skinner (laughs) from The Simpsons. He looks kind of the same. His hair is the same. His stuffy, humorless manner is the same. And when it comes to mother issues...
1: (laughs) Well, I'll never watch The Simpsons the same way again. (laughs) But but we should also talk about Frank Sinatra, who is actually the star of the film and behind the scenes was one of the key people to get it uh, produced and in such an uncompromised way. Sinatra is an interesting actor because he doesn't always act. He's often known for being in these rat pack movies yep. uh, where uh, they're just kind of having fun backstage and in between takes. But when Sinatra gets down to something he really cares about, he can deliver. He does it here. He did it in an earlier movie called the man with a golden arm about uh, heroin addiction and Sinatra is excellent as kind of the audience surrogate the person who brings us in to this world and there's a really interesting scene where he meets janet lay on a train by the way talk about runs janet lay has now in six years been in touch of evil psycho and the manchurian candidate that's (laughs) quite a run in and of itself But they have this very strange conversation when they first meet. Yes, there's some flirtatiousness going on, but there's also some other things going on, and that brings her status into question. And it's never answered in the film as to whether she is, in fact, Frank Sinatra's handler. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Now it leads me to
0: think about how... The idea of the lady who comes into your life. There's an interesting similarity about how Thelma Ritter's character reacts to, to the woman, new woman in Burt Lancaster's life in The Birdman of Alcatraz. And then just what does it mean to come into this person's life? At this point, Frank Sinatra's character is uh, having these nightmares. His basic sense of who to trust on a human level is at its lowest point. And here comes this lady having this incredibly weird introduction on the train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Compare that with Raymond Shaw's new paramour who he's
1: partly attracted to because at a Halloween party, she is wearing a queen outfit. Right. So we have <laughs> this other great visual motif, which is also a spoiler, but if you're already in this far, hopefully you've seen the film. The way Raymond is triggered is by inviting him to play a game of solitaire. Mm -hmm. And then when the Queen of Diamonds shows up, the very next thing he's ordered to do, he has to do no matter what it is. So when you get this costume party and you see his girlfriend dressed as the Queen of Diamonds, (laughs) and then you see the costume in his mother's possession... The visual motif of these cards becomes such a great shorthand every time the movie wants to emphasize just how screwed Lawrence Harvey's brain is. And again, I want to point out that it's just done
0: in these, in a great cinematic manner as these gigantic versions of the queen's face and -hmm. just the lines of the card Cut to like the incredibly sweaty Lawrence Harvey to just, like you said, just give a quick click to like, oh no, this guy's so messed up. Mm -hmm. And it's also just such a great move to have it be that symbol and especially that character in your deck of cards. And especially how Sinatra's character tries to break the kind of conditioning. How? By giving a
1: deck full Of such triggers. You know, we've talked about some of the more famous scenes in the film. but And I don't think that scene is known quite as much as the others. But I, I thought it was one of the most suspenseful. When Harvey keeps turning over the cards in this game of solitaire that Sinatra has organized in order to break the triggers. Yeah. And everything he turns up is the queen of diamonds just the way this is filmed even after the fifth or sixth viewing always has me at the edge of my seat and it's really incredible in context of the story because
0: you are not left with the idea if he has been successful or not maybe if anything the fact that it's the same card over and over has maybe reinforced him but what it does feel is it emphasizes the plight of the Raymond Shaw character, how little of a chance he had, how he had had these queen-like impressions and this control over his life the
1: whole time. Which leads us back into the political aspect of the film, which is when he is ordered to assassinate the presidential candidate, of whom his dim-witted McCarthyite stepfather is the vice presidential candidate, and he's ordered to kill the candidate himself so mm-hmm. that Gregory's character can rise up. And I think Angela Lansbury puts it and rule in a way that will make martial law seem like nothing. That yeah, is yeah. such a chilling line right there. And so you've got this climactic scene where Harvey is uh, pointed his rifle in the convention and who will he shoot like this entire movie? it, It plays on these two levels. It plays on this Hitchcockian suspense level as a great movie, but it also makes you think about our own politics and the way in which manipulation media and demagoguery can be used in such insidious ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Propaganda and indoctrination can not just like turn a person to do horrible acts or do things that are against are against his nature, but also works outward to give the society a presentation. There's a lot of comic angles, but with a real bite upon how the soldiers have been indoctrinated to think that Raymond Shaw is a wonderful war hero Mm -hmm. when he was anything but the sort. And it's driving them crazy. There's a great quote by Sinatra where he says, he's just such a hero, so why do I hate him so much? Right, right. (laughs) But what is that saying upon how people are presented as icons or heroes that they aren't, not necessarily, and the groups are expected to
1: believe it? You're so right. In addition to everything else, we're being offered ambiguity. Mm. We leave the film with a resolution. We do find out what Lawrence Harvey does. But between the idea that Sinatra may have his own handler and just the disarray that the political system is left in by the end of the film, we're not necessarily comforted it's an incredibly disquieting film while also being immensely entertaining
0: and political tensions were still on the mind on frankenheimer when he made his subsequent film seven days in may from 1964 <laughs> seven days in may imagines a united states divided and unstable when the president played by frederick march signs a nuclear disarmament treaty with the soviets bert lancaster is a popular general serving on the pentagon's joint chiefs of staff one whose assistant played by kirk douglas comes to the surprised realization that lancaster has some plans to keep this treaty
1: from taking effect Seven Days in May is written by none other than Rod Serling of Twilight Zone fame. And in almost any other run of films, it would be a complete highlight. As it is, it's a great film. It's just not quite Manchurian candidate level classic. But boy, does this film... Also, traffic in its own kind of political suspense. It comes in 1964, which is the same year as two other great nuclear paranoia films: Doctor Strangelove from mm. Stanley Kubrick, and Fail Safe from Sidney Lumet. This one kind of completes that 1964 trilogy. And it makes sense that this is what's on people's minds because of what was happening in history. We're just a couple years after the Cuban Missile Crisis and just a year after the Kennedy assassination. So the kind of upheaval that's depicted here is being echoed in the headlines at the time. Yeah, and the
0: conflict you can have between this desire for nuclear disarmament with the very, very real fear that this might be giving ourselves a disadvantage to an incredibly threatening force of the Soviet union is really deeply felt in this one that I felt of the three movies you describe is the most potent. Hmm. I think that the nightmarish qualities Of this sense of loss of control that happens so effectively in Manchurian Canada is dialed down to a very, not scorching, but a nice bubbling simmer. Good good way to put it. And the ability to maintain that tone throughout is all just masterfully done. You're on edge, but on a slightly heightened level throughout this film. And it ties in so well with this ever-growing suspense from what's, going, from what's going to happen
1: as the mysteries of this movie and the plots are slowly revealed. This is like a textbook on the right way to use movie stars. Near the end of the Hollywood studio system, Frederick March probably best known for his version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in the 30s, Mm. has been giving great performance after great performance for decades. Here, he brings the kind of gravitas to a president that makes it completely believable. The authenticity in which he deals with his authority and the emotional burden of his every decision affecting the future of the planet is really i think this film's ace in the hole if that doesn't work the rest of it won't fall into place as great as it does he has this combination of vulnerability and authority that's
0: perfect one of the things that this film brings out in the beginning is maybe the Biggest example of the dynamic between maybe one of Hollywood's biggest bromances, Mm -hmm. the um, uh, combination
1: of Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas. They have done four movies together. Before this, maybe their best known was The Gunfight at the OK Corral. Rarely have two people's screen personas been used so great
0: in terms of informing like a social situation. Lancaster is this phenomenally imposing juggernaut of force and personality and pure expression of will things are going to be done his way and douglas is the perfect example of the unstoppable Mm -hmm. someone who is (laughs) so directed towards enthusiasm and ardor towards his pal and the recognition of these just these great qualities of Lancaster's character and so when he sees where those qualities are being directed his anger in response is equally righteous and burns equally as bright and so the first part of the movie gets just some great dynamics from these two Hollywood personas clashing and one whose direction just gets
1: changed over the course of the film right when we discussed Birdman of Alcatraz, that was very much an exception to the kind of role Lancaster often plays. He he is often playing a demagogue. We talked about Sweet Smell of Success, but he won an Oscar for that kind of role. In Elmer Gantry, playing a, uh, a preacher. And here is this general who is, I guess, meant to be sort of the Angela Lansbury of <laughs> this film. But even Lancaster can't approach no, no, Angela no. Lansbury's no. level of ferocity. No, to be sure, to <laughs> be which sure. Is, which is a strange sentence when you think about it. <laughs> but you go on these separate tracks with him being propped up to do this coup which has been so meticulously planned and the mystery element of the film as Kirk Douglas by accident starts discovering clue after clue after clue. It's a great companion piece to the Manchurian candidate in how they build suspense.
0: Very true. I think as an interesting point of comparison might be that it, echoes the similar loss of innocence that Kirk Douglas's character had as a military officer in Stanley Kubrick's paths of glory. Mm-hmm. But whereas *Paths of glory by virtue of Kubrick directing in, in such a great deliberate way, we're allowed to give some serious consideration for, for how his ideals have been let down by the people around him. But this one does it totally different due to, I, a large part, I have to thank Frankenheimer's direction, his anger and his sense of betrayal of how his friend has let him down is just leaps off the screen mm-hmm. for me. Never has that little dimple in uh, Kirk Douglas's <laughs> chin been used to such great dramatic effect as when he gets more and more aghast as how far the schemes has led Car- L- Lancaster astray feels so much more energetic and real and powerful and present in this film to
1: just see the arc of kirk douglas's realization right and how both performances are informed by their characters being military men Mm -hmm. and in the case of kirk douglas being limited by that being somebody who doesn't want to believe the worst and also very much wants to maintain ranks and maintaining the chain of authority. Douglas is so great at doing this balancing act.
0: Now you just led me to think about how rebelling against the structures that control you has been something that's been on the mind of Birdman of Alcatraz and the Manchurian Candidate, these mm-hmm. these restrictions that are imposed, and where do you have the free will, and where what free will is considered appropriate in which, which situation. These look like a, a theme that Frankenheimer's been exploring, or his films
1: have been exploring through these uh, last uh, couple of movies. But unlike those films, I think this one's a little different because it comes very much on the side of order. And the threat here is the character who discards the traditional order of the relation between the military and the civilian commander in chief. Mhm. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's what uh, that's why I think that March's performance is by the conclusion just
0: locks everything in. I think everything works in on um, this in this great confrontation between Lancaster and March because Lancaster mm-hmm. has, loses loses absolutely none of this physical presence. You feel he has the charisma and the sheer willpower to be able to bring this coup about. You feel it can happen with him. And then March matches it by matches it with virtue, right? With the Mm -hmm. values of democracy and his counter is so amazing in its belief in the power of the American system is greater than this guy's idea of will to power and only a select amount of people are the quote-unquote right people to dictate how people behave. He He makes a great statement, which among other things says, if you think your beliefs are so right, you hold an election like
1: anybody else and you let the American people decide. And that brings us back to kind of the historical context, because this comes out at a time when people are still mourning JFK, and was written during the Kennedy administration when the whole idea of Camelot had taken hold, and there was a certain innocence about the nation that the president could really be a force for good, uh, someone who is Idealistic, And even though there are elements of Kennedy in the context, he actually seems to be doing a little bit more of a riff on uh, Adelaide Stevenson, mm-hmm. who ran for president against Eisenhower in those two elections.
0: Yes. And it's one of the great virtues of the story structure in that first, he is so dealing with the threat by this coup that so much of frederick march's character is reacting mm-hmm. and it ties into these popular unpleasant sentiments about how adlai stevenson was just going to be reacting to things and he you need a man of action in order for us to survive right. the soviet threat mm-hmm. so march while appearing very capable in the very beginning is still a person who is just always seems a step behind that's what makes the confrontation
1: at the end so triumphant that's why the vulnerability is so important exactly not come off as somebody who always has all the answers exactly exactly i want to give a special shout out to
0: like rod serling rod serling is obviously well known for the twilight zone but it needs to be noted that The Twilight Zone managed to make so many amazing episodes to a whole range of different subjects, and from the metaphysical to science fiction to just sheerly inspired fables. And the vast majority of them were written by Serling. But Serling here is a potent political thriller. The way it doles out this information and keeping us at a knife's edge upon whether this. Scheme will succeed or not due to both the the dogged pursuit of the truth by Douglas's character and then random happenstance, maybe throwing the whims of fate one direction or another. It's a, an astonishing amount of tension brought in on the writing level. Definitely. And then mm-hmm. this, on top of all that, the dude actually wrote pl- Planet of the Apes screenplay, too. <laughs> <laughs> like, Serling is an absolute god in, in, in my eyes on here. And I feel that the confrontation on March, Lancaster, Frankenheimer's direction, and Rod Serling's script brings in, like, like the best Twilight Zone episodes, the ideals of what compels humanity are just burned together into a great
1: crystalline form by the end of uh, seven days in May. Yeah, it's definitely another winner. And now let's find out if he's got yet another one in him. Right. Will he keep the train rolling in his film from
0: 1964?
1: This takes place during the last days of World War II, during the Nazi occupation of France. A Nazi colonel with an eye for art, played by Paul Schofield, orders the masterpieces of a French art museum to be transferred to Germany by train. Running the train system is a French inspector who is also part of the resistance and must slow down the precious cargo while waiting for the Allied liberation.
0: Now, this is a a movie that I find fascinating for two particular different reasons, one of which is I think that Frankenheimer is the most interested in the mechanics of things more than he has in his previous efforts. There's so much about the geography of the train that he presents into almost like a fetishistic degree. Uh, so much is dedicated towards the steam coming from the smokestacks and the pistons, the roaring fire of, of dumping coal into the hopper, the the spinning of the train, and just the mechanics of switching from one track to another or how these tracks can be bent. And never has I seen so much of a train graveyard since how many different ways a train can be um, dismantled mm-hmm. than in this
1: movie. <laughs> I am going to find some things to nitpick about the movie, but... I do think it deserves to be considered part of this great five-movie run, although probably the least of the five. But visually, it still has that black-and-white deep focus that Frankenheimer has mastered. So if nothing else, it looks great. But it's also got some really interesting thematics about it. And it's set up right at the very beginning in this museum where we see all these paintings. Frankenheimer has them lighted very expressionistically, almost in spotlights as the Nazi colonel and the woman who runs the museum kind of have this conversation about the value of art. It's really interesting right off the bat that for a war film, we're going to be talking about different stakes than the usual war film. And this is a
2: weird
0: comparison, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Mm-hmm. The opening five-minute credits of The Train echoes to me the disposal of the human bodies at the ending credits of Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Huh. Because in a similar way, this these priceless artworks, you get to recognize even from like a a view, a filmed version of the quality that this art must represent. And you see them slowly pulled off piece by piece and then packed into these coffin, like wooden containers that
1: just have the identifier of the artist, but they're pulled off by somebody who cares for them, which is a really interesting Character dynamic. We're now put in a position where the villain of the piece, the the Nazi, is the art lover. Yes, and Bert Lancaster, who is going to be the resistance member who who runs the train system, he doesn't really care about the art he cares about what's best for the resistance and the plot will event will eventually lead us to a point where saving the art is what's best for the resistance but he doesn't have that natural affinity it's an interesting dynamic and not unique i mean the evil but cultured nazi would come back later in films like uh, raiders of the lost ark and inglorious bastards
0: right 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 But I think Schofield's performance and the direction of the film give it an interesting spin on that person, as does Lancaster's, what I feel, poor performance or <laughs> rather effective non-performance. You know, what? that's the other interesting thing I think about the movie is that Lancaster may come across in sometimes like as a, 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 a dumb jock version of Robert Redford. <laughs> mm hmm. A very attractive very well-built guy who finds things are over his head (laughs) and it's very rarely more present here as his character's motivations towards supporting and resisting the continuation of trying to keep this train delayed
1: is not ambiguous so much as murky and non-defined i think well i guess that kind of leads into my nitpicks because I, oh. I don't think these these kill the film but they're definitely distracting hmm. uh, the most of which is not so much bert lancaster giving a poor performance as bert lancaster being french now now, now, since this is a podcast you can't see i just did air quotes (laughs) he is as effective as a french person as he is as an italian person in the young savages let's put it that way he does not does not attempt an accent which is 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 probably wise but i just (laughs) kept thinking as i'm watching this oh yeah right he he's french because his american mannerisms are so front and center and everyone else is is going for accents. So this entire movie is filled with people doing German accents and French accents, Mm. except for Burt Lancaster. Trust us. He's French, right? His two compatriots, especially are very, very French, which Mm -hmm. only heightens that kind of contradiction. But my other issue is, is a little bit with the pacing. Unlike the last three films we discussed It's not really a tight film. It's a film with great scenes and and also a film with a lot of filler. And the geography of how people are keeping track of this train that has left the station and is made to go in the opposite direction as the Nazis have assumed. There's an entire set of scenes where people have painted over signs at stations to give the wrong station information and then as soon as the train leaves they they lift it up look this is unfair to the film because it it came out before but that reminded me is a little bit too hogan's heroes (laughs) oh (laughs)
0: wow okay (laughs) huh i guess i can see the sense of general hokiness that oh you just switch out this sign and then everyone's going to believe like no one's ever been on this station before you don't expect like every station going to be exactly the same and you can't tell one from another
1: right i guess i'd call it the logistics of the film are a little bit off but that doesn't stop individual scenes from being really effective and everything involving just the physicality of the train Mm -hmm. comes through like gangbusters
0: yeah that sense of the train as this inexorable force or at least that it has its momentum and weight to where it's going and where it's ending up is really felt and i think a lot of the feeling of it is from the direction and when the train loses its uh, placement on the tracks is just great because it happens in two places and how it happens is both done so slowly and deliberately once again uh, frankenheimer is masterful i just giving us the tension drop by drop by drop as the train gets to this sort of damaged area of mm-hmm. the
1: track that's just presented really really well agreed uh, like a train the movie really picks up speed <laughs> and, and, <laughs> right. and quality as it goes on now i think An element that I thought was a bit more of a a distraction is the relationship between Lancaster and a uh, local uh, innkeeper played by Jean Moreau, which felt a little bit like, well, we have to have some kind of romance in here, so let's just make that happen. Agreed. You
0: don't get a sense that either character is particularly changed or is really motivated to help the other, apart from their shared hatred of the Nazis. Mm -hmm. That part does look like it's mostly put there to go give Lancaster an extra dimension of humanity. In other words, give him one dimension (laughs) (laughs) of, of humanity. See, this is actually a very interesting facet of the movie, because for the vast majority of the film... You cannot tell, and he does not perform in a way that you can tell his feelings about his mission. He switches to being reluctant, to being dedicated
1: in an almost arbitrary manner. Well, I think it might have to, it's, it, it might have to do with the death of the Michelle Simone character. Mm. I think that motivates him, and also that he becomes convinced that saving the artwork is, in fact, because it's representative of French culture and of independence from the Nazis, that it is a mission worthy of the resistance. But that's something that he comes to plot-wise instead of character-wise.
0: Yes, and I actually think that other characters feel that level in a way that Lancaster does not. Other characters go, okay, this mission is most likely doomed, but this is for France.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then it cuts to Lancaster's face, which is this model of implacability. <laughs> it could scarcely be more immoving than the front grill of the train itself. <laughs> now, the reason why, though, that I find that interesting is because it leads towards an absolutely astounding conclusion in a way that I found similar to the arc of the unexpected depths of um, Marlowe's character in a long goodbye. Yes. What I had thought was a flaw in the movie becomes an incredible asset because there is a part where Lancaster character meets Paul Schofield's Nazi character. And the dynamic is really interesting. Schofield has the most dramatic arc. During points of the movie, even though he's the villain, he has moments of triumph, frustration, anger, despair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he goes through the gamut of emotions. It actually kind of reminds me that this is sort of a Nazi artwork, train-based version of kind of the the quote-unquote bad guy from John Wick, whereas like usually in a sort of a, a, a thriller movie or an action movie, the killer is this implacable force that will never, ever stop. In John Wick, Keanu Reeves is the implacable force, mm-hmm. and the arc is from the bad guy who's like, oh my God, all these different reactions to try and deal with him. <laughs> and this is what I actually think that Schofield is doing in his performance and the story is doing with his character.
1: Absolutely. The resonance of this film is, is 100% attached to the ending. So if you have not seen the film, spoiler warning here. We're basically dealing with a race against time for when the Allies are inevitably going to come in and liberate France to Schofield's now personal mission to get this artwork to Germany. At this point, not even so much for the Reich but for his own personal edification. And then, as you mentioned before, there's a wonderful scene of the sabotage and the train being sent off its tracks. But there are also basically these hostages that are basically have been bound to the train as a precaution against the bombing of the train. So once the train is stopped and Lancaster has the upper hand, Schofield has been concerned with nothing but the art at this point. But all these hostages have now been mowed down, and Lancaster sees this. I might disagree with you a little bit here in the effectiveness of Lancaster's performance, Hmm. because he really does deliver this moment where he sees what's occurred, and he views Schofield as the party responsible and shoots him down. In cold blood, much like, as you mentioned, happens at the end of the long goodbye. Mm -hmm. It is a powerful moment because it really covers an interesting theme of the value of art versus the value of human life and what it means to be cultured. What do we care about? And I think the film comes down on Lancaster's side. Even though we do relate to Schofield's love of the art and the idea that it it should be preserved, the fact that he cares not a bit about the human lives that are the cost of that preservation finally puts him in the villain role we assume him to be in all the time as a Nazi. The movie tips its hand a tiny bit on
0: one side as it has Schofield's character say, Oh this art is only for me, right? Or a guy like me. So it actually undercuts itself a little bit, but <laughs> but the implication is that it explicitly says no, I just want to keep it for myself. And so a little of that ambiguity upon the mission is is lost there. However, Lancaster his acting, while being just as wooden as it was before, now has a purpose right. because Schofield is has had such dramatic changes through this and he's been sweating bullets to get this mission over. And now he's seeing this guy who is a dumb lummox who would never in a million years in Schofield's view ever appreciate one moment of this artwork that he's been trying so hard to get into Germany on this train. And it becomes a genius move of, of the performance of Lancaster and of Frankenheimer that we in the audience understand exactly that. I know when I see it, there's no way in the hell I think Lancaster's character would ever be able to get any ounce of appreciation for any mm-hmm. of that artwork. But Lancaster slowly looks back and sees that a masses of dead bodies of the hostages who were shot down and then slowly turns around and
1: then opens fire. Right, because Lancaster does have a sense of the value of human life. Exactly. Which is something Schofield's character has completely lost. Yes. So, again, just really interesting thematics making what's otherwise a solid, if overlong, action movie resonate more.
0: Exactly. And in a great bookend to the beginning, in what may be one of Frankenheimer's greatest Shots of visual composition that he has ever made. You see Lancaster's character walking off into the distance. The train is isolated, immovable in the center. And the bottom of the frame are all these discarded bodies of the hostages who have been shot dead. But over to the side are all the discarded boxes mm-hmm. that uh, of all this. Artwork and you see that look like coffins. So, the combination of discarded art, discarded humanity, and the train that connected it and uh, sent to maybe arguably sent to ruin with them both all comes in through a single image. Ironically, it would have made for a great painting by itself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And discarded lives is a theme that will carry through. To Frankenheimer's next film. Right, which would be seconds from 1966.
0: This film introduces us to a wealthy, middle-aged man unhappy with his seemingly ideal life and looking to start over. He's recruited by a secretive organization who promises every means to start over with a second life, including getting a face like Rox Hudson. The adjustment isn't easy, and memories of his former
1: life threaten the prospects of his new one. You know, you you mentioned before the value of Rod Serling and his contribution to uh, screenwriting both on television and film. And in seconds, we may have just about the greatest Twilight Zone episode of all. It's this science fiction morality play where Frankenheimer takes his visual eccentricities, the wide-angle lens, and... With the help of cinematographer James Wong Howe, creates something that may be visually unprecedented in telling such a powerful story. The feelings it gets of fear
0: and loss of direction and loss of purpose feel like the most disturbing impulses you would get out of, say, a Franz Kafka novel. But they are tied in on this pure nerve-ending level with how society works that it is just astonishing to behold for me. Like the kids go and say about real talk <laughs> when you say, we're just going to go keep this real. Mm-hmm. Seconds keeps it real. It's real talk upon nothing less than how our whole society works in the idea of selling a different version of ourselves.
1: Good point. This probably is another film that we should say is spoiler-filled. Even though we figured it out fairly early, it's such a unique conceit that it deserves to be seen fresh. So John Randolph plays a middle-aged man, late 50s or so, He's wealthy, but he's not happy. He loveless relationship with his wife. His kids are grown. And he just feels like he doesn't have much as far as something to really motivate him. He is recruited by this uh, mysterious organization. And, and in the very first scene, the visuals are already adding to this because basically the characters are approaching him on dollies. We don't see the dollies, but something that kind of recreates a, a cam effect long before the cam came into use. So people are approaching him, but they don't appear to be walking. They appear to be floating yeah. and he gets recruited by this organization to have his identity erased and be able to start over as Rock Hudson He's hesitant at first. They actually provide a little blackmail incentive. But in the end, he he does go along with this and believes that he can restart his life. This conceit, the impossibility of it, is so vividly expressed in what probably is Frankenheimer's first horror film. That's a really nice
0: way of putting it. It's As an explicit horror. Yeah, but I don't even know of a single horror film where the horror is tied in so absolutely perfectly with the horror uh, people work through in their daily lives. This film did not really do well on the box office, and one of the reasons why was there was several middle-aged executives who had, after they left the screen, they go... I can't watch this movie ever, ever again. <laughs> That's my life up mm-hmm. there. That's what makes this movie so astounding. Like you said, the beginning is so great at being nightmarish and strange in an early Lynch way, in a Ken Russell at his craziest way. It's just about a person approaching like at a train station, yet it's so super claustrophobic. They're using what Frank and I was using widely angle lenses now sometimes it alternates between that and fisheye
1: lenses yeah the wide angle lenses are wider than ever nothing in the film appears realistic objects placed in front of the camera seem ridiculously large faces seem ridiculously large so if frankenheimer was hinting at a kind of visual Unreality through this method in earlier films, he takes it to the extreme here. But it's to such an
0: amazing purpose. The beginning is so strange, but when Randolph gets into the room where he's talking with the head guy from this organization, it settles down to be an incredible, unbroken, single static shot. As you just have Randolph's character facing us, but facing away from this person who is propositioning him. And he just goes on this monologue, talking about his life. The more he talks, the more he feels that his life is just empty, devoid of meaning. You get this 10 minutes of pure visual horror, visual disturbance. And then you get the absolute
1: death nerve behind what made him, Randolph, so dislocated. We have to believe that he'd be willing to put himself through this. this exactly. This, this crazed surgical process, the idea of leaving behind everyone he's ever known in his life and his prior identity if the movie can't sell that this character would do that, it's not going to work.
0: Frankenheimer focuses on his face to let him give us these feelings for our complete conviction that he feels the need to do this. But I want to also talk about the need to do this, to reinvent yourself. Furthermore, to hire a company, to go and reinvent yourself is nothing less than the exact promise of everything we're advertised today, mm-hmm. especially in a lifestyle context. You buy these shoes and it's not that you'll run faster, but your life will be more enlightened to the sporting adventure. <laughs> buy this car and you'll be more rugged as a result. <laughs> You get this product or that, that product and the idea that you can define your life by the things that you buy, by the things that a company is willing to sell to you. In point of fact, so much of the stuff that we are advertised to on a daily basis is exactly that promise. The hard sell has disappeared for mo- many products. For most, it's the idea of You can be a new person. Mm -hmm.
1: That's such a good point because how many products are out there to make us appear more youthful, whether it be anything from makeup to plastic surgery to clothes. And here we have the idea of offering youth itself as a commodity. Mm -hmm. So you're right. It hits on something very primal and it goes
0: actually a little further but i want to just point out the most ludicrous example upon this is how the baby boomer generation in its attempt to still say that they're youthful and hip and with it reached maybe it's a ludicrous hypothesis and an advertisement for a cruise line which had people enjoying their cruise life to the songs of iggy pop's lust for life <laughs>
1: About cruises, right? Yeah,
0: <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's about cruising, yes. Yeah. Cruising to keep your heroin
1: fix. Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's the kind of perversity that seconds is trafficking in, but yet it's really, it is really the world around us. This whole sense that, like, you buy this thing or pardon this activity and you can reinvent yourself. And it goes further, though, because... It's also clear in the movie that in order for him to get his new identity, somebody has to die so that body can be found to be assumed to be uh, the present person. Henceforth, the idea is you think this is just for your own benefit, but it actually shows the cost as well. There's a cost that you may not realize, but it's the cost of other people's lives for you to get these particular luxury of having a new life.
1: The new life is not just yours. It's at the expense of another. Right. And that brings us to the second part of the movie where Rock Hudson takes over this role. Rock Hudson was known almost exclusively for lighthearted, fair romantic comedies Maybe the the most serious thing he, he had done are, are some uh, Douglas Sirk melodramas. But he was considered a movie star sex symbol, but not a serious actor. Mm-hmm. Boy, does he get to deliver here because he goes through so many stages when we see him in his new life as Rock Hudson. And, and the most brilliant thing about this section is how really uncomfortable he is at it. Hudson portrays the kind of insecurities that somebody who is not Rock Hudson might feel if they all of a sudden looked like Rock Hudson as this glamorous life kind of opens up for him. There's never a point in which we, we don't see his prior life's personality reacting to it.
0: That's a great point and one of the – I think one of the key things that make this movie a towering achievement in not just filmmaking but literally filmed truthfulness on screen because it takes the idea of you can be a better person, a happier person. You buy this or buy that. And it sets a flamethrower to it. Mm -hmm. It immolates it. Like some of like the greatest Simpsons episodes or greatest satires you can ever imagine. When you read a really great satire, you can never take seriously the thing it was satirizing ever again. Seconds destroys that concept of advertising and point of it specifically for me, it actually destroys the whole idea of Mad Men, the whole TV show, which for its many fine qualities is trafficking in this whole idea, but it has this romanticism about it right down to the fact that the main character, Don Draper, that's not his real name. <laughs> He's also, re- <laughs> take the name from somebody else. <laughs> and it shows what an absolute, pardon my um, French, Crock of horseshit, that is. That you can't reinvent yourself because it's you who's making the journey.
1: Yes. The the phrase I've often heard is, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> and this And movie, who you, wherever you go, who you are. Who you are, exactly. <laughs> There's a an amazing scene that was uh, censored on its original release, but now you could see- On the uh, Criterion DVD or Blu-ray, where after meeting this uh, young woman on a beach and forming a bond, they go to basically this wine celebration that turns into a naked frenzy of a bacchanal where all the participants strip and stomp on the grapes and pour them on each other and just absolutely revel in this life-affirming hippie-ish atmosphere. Yeah. And here he is with this woman who appears to have real affection for him. It would seem like the kind of casting off an embrace of youth yeah. that an older person might want to do if given the chance, but... He can't enjoy it. It's not him. It's not his generation. It's not his culture. It's not something he even approves of. Yeah. And so it really takes this idea of circumstance not really being as important as we all make it. Because... As it turns out, no matter where he is, no matter how ideal, no matter how much he has or is given, no matter how he looks, he can't get away from the man he was. Exactly. Exactly. He also can't go home again. He, against the strong advice of his handlers, ends up visiting his wife, who, uh, doesn't recognize him in his new identity, He poses as a friend of of her late husband. Mm -hmm. And it's revealed that she really never knew him and didn't really end up savoring that much affection from him after he was gone. It's kind of like the final nail in the coffin for this second life is this idea that not only does he have no fulfillment in this fake future Mm -hmm. that is they're trying to build from scratch for him. But now his memories are tainted of everything that came before. And in fact, from the company's point of view, the memories are a problem to begin with. (laughs) that part of part of this company's goal is for you to forget who you were right which is which is a very anti-human thing to do yes because we are the accumulation of our past memories deeds and actions
0: yes exactly exactly but it's the mission of the world to try and sell us stuff to always be thinking of the present Mm -hmm. to always be, well, here's the new thing. Get the new iPhone, get the new brand of shoes, get this new car, get the newest model. Here's the latest, the greatest, the best. And most importantly, but wait, that's not all, which is the greatest promise
1: of them all. (laughs) Because that leads to kind of the final twist of the knife of the film what he thinks now is missing is really the same thing we talked about in Birdman of Alcatraz, this kind of independence. He's seen his identity taken away from him and a false one supplied to him, but now he thinks, well, if only I have the freedom to create a new persona, a new individuality, then everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. But from this company's view, everything is not okay because while they provide lives for seconds, they provide no lives for thirds. And if you want to be a third, you actually end up a corpse to be replaced by another second. Right. Seconds, especially in its ending creates one of the most nightmarish scenes i can remember which is when rock hudson finally realizes what's going to happen to him yes and the camera is then placed on this gurney that he's strapped to and hudson lets Everything out in his attempts to get out, and you could tell that it's beyond acting. His struggles to get out of this, Mm -hmm. and it's a hundred percent convincing, but it's also a hundred percent a nightmare because it's shot in this crazed, expressionistic way. That's kind of why I compared it at the beginning to the twilight zone Mm -hmm. is because it's the, the whole idea of that. There's kind of this moral and that if you are not attuned to what the moral is, then the results can be tragic. So true. Like how we were
0: talking on the train and how that last shot and last sequence really crystallizes all these ideas and brings them into focus. I just want to bring into the focus just what ends up happening in like the last 15 minutes because a lot of things happen, but they all crystallize the message and at the same time blow up into all sorts of just astounding dimensions and contexts that are just amazingly rewarding, I think, to follow. For one thing, when he's carried on that gurney and the camera's right at gurney level, Rock Hudson does one of the most Epic, just performances of rage against the dying of the light that's ever been put on film. It's a performance where you literally feel bad for him and you hope he's all right after he did it. (laughs) Notably, they had to do certain takes again and again because he was so writhing on this gurney that he had broken the straps that were done to keep him in place.
1: They also had to hire football players to restrain him, because nobody of <laughs> normal size yeah. could uh, could restrain him in it when he was in that mode, and they had to they had to get new straps, heavier straps exactly, exactly.
0: Hudson goes all out on here. the moment that precedes it is brilliant as well because it is in a wonderful reversal of the beginning of the movie is as static as the gurney is kinetic. Once again, you have Hudson who's all character who's been Randolph's character. He's facing us and then the guy who propositioned this is right behind him and he's saying, well, it didn't work out <laughs> but we'll we will refine our methods and we'll try again. It sounds all very comforting until you understand that none of these plans involve Rock Hudson ever being back in the picture right. for these plans it's brilliant on a number of levels first it bookends randolph's monologue and especially once you see what happens to him rock hudson's statement about no no this time this time i'll do it right is heartbreaking in the uh, idea of making a promise you can never fulfill it has another dimension when you realize the person who's propositioning these people is himself an old man, right? (laughs) That should be a pretty red flag to say that he does not trust (laughs) his own process. (laughs) And it gives another dimension when the actor playing him is Will gear and will gear was one of the actors who was banned as part of the Hollywood blacklist. Someone who wasn't able to pursue his calling. But the idea of the actor and the role he's playing is nowhere near potent than the fact that this is Rock Hudson, because you tied into how Rock Hudson was playing all these fluffy comedies and were, did these Douglas Sirk dramas, and he was known as a sex symbol. But not only was his name not really Rock Hudson but he was a homosexual. Mm -hmm. So in those moments where he's expressing regret at not being able to succeed at playing a quote unquote new guy, how powerful is it that this is rock Hudson all, but maybe confessing to us in the audience that he could not admit to us, the true person he is. And how much does the pain and the physical fight and struggle that he does at the end become all the more resonant because it's his struggle on an actor's level, his struggle on a performance level, his struggle on a persona level, his struggle on a name level. So astoundingly furious of a of a pure message that just flies off in all sorts of interesting directions and the last 15 minutes it's a great combination of both rosebud and the ending of 1984 because he sees a scene from his childhood as he's running on the beach and it's hazy and as you see this it's and it gets out of of focus you hear the drill going louder and louder and it echoes to me about like how winston hears the bullet coming and he's now a second in the most fullest way you can.
1: So now that we have gone through Frankenheimer's golden period of great films, things get a little mixed from here on out, but that may be kind of unfair because he's got a lot of movies and we haven't seen a lot of them. So you might end up seeing a different set of Frankenheimer films. But there are a few films that, Al, you have seen that I haven't, and, mm-hmm. and vice versa. Right. So we're going to do a little bit of a lightning round of, film, of Frankenheimer films that uh, only one of us has seen. So I believe you have the first one.
0: Yes, I saw Grand Prix, his film from 1966, about a, a sort of ensemble piece about people on the Grand Prix racetrack. The biggest notable thing about this film is has full of racing scenes that are delivered wonderfully hmm. by frankenheimer they are always astounding to watch to the effect that for me i literally found they transcended the the actual plot and frankenheimer it looks uses these the technology as, as far as he can to get right up close to their uh racing elements but unlike days of thunder or even i would say ron howard's rush which would probably be the closest equivalent mm-hmm. the you are there quality of just the of each race uh of uh each passing car and potential for crash is very very potent it's
1: very enjoyable for that less so of the the drama that comes in filler by comparison so we've both been really impressed by the black and white uh film uh, photography in his earlier films and this is his first film in color Mm -hmm. does uh he but you're saying he still brings that visual flair
0: yes yes he he's muted the the um the Angles that he made most notable in films like Manchurian Candidate and Seconds. A lot of it is much more wide angle in terms to capture all the efforts of the race cars. It seems so sort of a little shift in focus here. He's not really using color in any sort of like expressive way, except in a way to just making the racing contests incredibly intense and exciting, but not like completely polished in the way tony scott would do Mm -hmm. it's shiny it's chromey and so and so forth
1: well the next one i saw is a far less fortunate experience uh it was his 1969 film the extraordinary seaman don't panic anybody it's about sailors oh okay (laughs) it is also by far the worst frankenheimer film i have ever seen and we haven't gotten to the giant mutant bear one yet. I'm going to have to issue a spoiler warning, even though it's a stupid spoiler. Hmm. It stars uh, David Niven as this proper British uh, ship's captain during World War II, and Alan Alda, Mickey Rooney, and Faye Dunaway. Any credit we gave Mickey Rooney from the comedian is is taken right back away here. And Faye Dunaway, wow. Faye Dunaway is the uh, spunky junkyard salesman who ends up a passenger on this uh, barge, and Alan Alda is the accountant who is somehow the first mate. Now, the big to-do about this movie is, wait for it, David Niven is a ghost, And even though he is captaining the ship, everyone is interacting with him. We we find out that he is actually a uh, was killed during World War One. His entire family were soldiers. And in order for him to reach the afterlife, he has to destroy an enemy vessel. And so he brings in Alan Alda, Faye Dunaway, and Mickey Rooney for uh, said effect. <laughs> now,
0: I think from what you how you described that Faye Dunaway plays a um, very enthusiastic junkyard salesperson, and the fact that Mickey Rooney is in this movie at all <laughs> seems to give me a sense that this film was attempting to be a
1: farce or a delightful comedic uh, attempt uh, yes that is what it's trying to be i guess i I didn't think to initially introduce it as as a comedy because it is profoundly unfunny but Mm -hmm. but in its own Mm -hmm. mind this is a a a comedic film it also uses a really annoying gimmick that would later appear on the old uh, cable show dream on where as people are talking and delivering dialogue, we will cut to stock footage that is supposed to ironically comment upon said dialogue. So oh. when uh, David Niven g- talks about warriors, we cut to a speech by Winston Churchill.
0: Now, see, that sounds potentially, potentially interesting. Is there any justification in the movie for why these things are happening? None. Okay. Huh. I mean, it's an, int- that seems an interesting choice for Frankenheimer, as is his ostensible first comedy. Now, Manchurian candidate and I even argue seconds have a darkly funny tone at times, but this is at least the first movie of his that was aiming to be a comedy.
1: Right, so you want to give him some points for trying something different, Mm -hmm. but it fails spectacularly on every level. Mm. This gimmick is not done thoughtfully in a way that it might be used in another film, and it's an ugly film. It just doesn't look good. I suspect there was a budgetary limitation. There's only 10 people in this movie, and Mm. it barely got a release. Sounds like an interesting, different shot in the dark. a Sort of after-hours, say, if after-hours had been a complete <laughs> ugly-looking failure. Right, right. <laughs> yes, yeah, a shot that misses. Right, exactly. But better <laughs> off, and in a completely different kick than really anything we've seen from Frankenheimer since his television days, is his filmed play of Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh. This is literally a filmed play. It all takes place in a bar. If you've ever seen any of the BBC productions of Shakespeare plays or I, Claudius or any, any of those, you kind of get the idea that they're filming it, but not as a movie. So we, we, can't, we don't, can't really judge this on a cinematic level. It's a full four-hour adaptation of the play. It stars Lee Marvin. In the lead role is Hickey, and other standouts are Robert Ryan, who I think gives the best performance in the film. Frederick Marchs Back, ah. and very young Jeff bridges basically it 's about a group of drunks, and when I say drunk, I mean Victor McLaughlin and The Informer drunk these oh. guys have these guys are there to crawl into their bar stools and die. In comes Lee Marvin, who was one of them, who they've been waiting for because he's the gregarious, life-of-the-party salesman. But he comes in with a surprise and that he's not drinking anymore, which horrifies everybody. Oh. They become mm-hmm. even more horrified when it turns out that he's got an agenda, which is that he wants to try to wake them up to their dreams and goals that they've left behind to uh, fester in this bar and encourages them to seek out what it is they keep talking about drunkenly every day.
0: Oh, okay. I've never seen or even heard of the plot of Iceman Come Off. Mm-hmm. I'm just glad it doesn't uh, involve Val Kilmer's Top Gun character anyway. <laughs> The premise as you describe sounds really interesting and a very nice subject for a play, but I'm gonna ha- I do have a stupid question about right. that, which is why is it
1: important that the Iceman cometh or goeth? Because back in his drunken days, Hickey used to uh, tell this story about how his wife has been cheating with the Iceman. Uh, and it, it takes place back in the day when there was such a thing as, God, a, as gotcha. an Iceman to deliver the ice. It was l- yeah. uh, an early version of the Milkman, which exactly. was an early version of the Ski Instructor. <laughs> right. So it's a, it's a joke that there, there's, there's not a punchline for, but it's utilized as kind of a, a repeating thematic. Mm-hmm. throughout now Robert Ryan I can totally see as a down-on-his-luck guy who is mournful about the past he is so good he's got this haggard face and is basically his attitude is like I cannot wait to die oh wow <laughs> however I do have a question on Lee Marvin who's known generally in film
0: as a man of action whether fighting um uh, Jimmy Stewart in Liberty Valance or being the um, unstoppable force in Point Blank to the guy who was Will absolutely paint his wagon while singing. <laughs> so how is he as a
1: motivational speaking life of the party sort? He is excellent. Mm. And and he is I don't think anyone's idea of your first choice to lead a Eugene O'Neill ensemble, but he delivers. I mean, he's got to be gregarious, forceful, a charismatic man, but also somebody who's hiding a dark secret. Okay. Now, the next one, I think, uh, is one you got to catch, but I haven't. And this is another attempt at comedy, I would argue, from the
0: sound of it, marginally more successful than The Extraordinary Seaman, with the great title of 99 and 44, 100% dead, which is a tagline for the purity of ivory soap.
1: (laughs) I was wondering. (laughs) (laughs) This is... Is
0: one of these films that attempted to make some light out of the hitman role and or uh, spy roles stuff that Iron Man Flint or the President's Analyst were trying to do hmm. here. The film is this attempt to make a partial take on the hitman returning into try to help out one side of two warring gang factions in the big city. Something maybe akin to Michael Caine in Get Carter. Mm -hmm. The Michael Caine character is played by Richard Harris in this one, which is super ironic because he looks exactly like Michael Caine from one of his other series of movies, the um, Harry Palmer films such as The Billion Dollar Brain and The Ipcrest File. Oh, okay. He's a dead ringer (laughs) for that. So this film just explores the different absurdities of this, of this guy's endeavor, one of which is that while New York looks contemporary for the late 60s, early 70s, most of the gangsters look like and act like hoods from the 40s <laughs> and 50s. They drive these old school cars. They have these great bootlegger loud turns. Once again, Frankenheimer does amazing work with car chases. Including in a wonderful Farshall touch, a chase involving a school bus. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a real incongruity about how people in uh, in the city are behaving normally um, in the park, but whereas all there's all these dapper gangsters with fedoras and dark pinstriped suits committing their um, uh, noirish
1: deeds. And does this period disconnection work?
0: I find it interesting how. In a way that's similar to Bogdanovich's targets approached horror from both the old school horror that Hollywood was familiar with with the new school horrors, this film explores in a partial way the difference between the kind of violence that had become more acceptable or familiar thanks to the new wave of Hollywood films, but contrasts that with the old school noirish way violence was handled there's one part where they need to diffuse a bomb in a school the bomb diffusal is done incredibly nicely in terms of its intensity and suspense there it, the slightest vibration could cause this bomb to go off requiring richard harris's characters to slowly pull off these wires that attach that cause these vibrations to be induced he carefully diffuses it so no of the wires are connected and they carefully try to walk away, and it shows them walking away from the school from which the bomb was on the top floor. But then it cuts to a fly buzzing around, and the fly just sits on the plunger. But then it cuts to Richard Harris sternly walking away as the entire top floor of the school blows up. So in the span of, like, 15 seconds, you get amazing suspense, an incredibly goofy moment, and then the standard badass hero walking away Mm. from an explosion thing. So it's an interesting mishmash of this stuff.
1: So you mentioned in the two films you've seen Frankenheimer's affinity for uh, cars and car chases, and one would think that his next project would be ready-made for such skills. Exactly,
0: because in his next film, he gets the chance to do a follow-up to the legendary French Connection in French Connection 2 from 1975.
3: It's my wife, and it's my life, <laughs> because a manor to my vein needs to a center in my head, and then I'm better off and dead.
0: This sequel again stars Gene Hackman as the tough and ethically flexible New York cop Popeye Doyle. Following the drug kingpin who got away at the end of the first film to Marseille, Doyle tries to work with the French police, but he will not be restrained in his pursuit, no matter the cost. This is
1: a film in three parts, only one of which functions as any kind of a sequel to The French Connection. The first third of the film, for some reason, is a fish-out-of-water comedy or wannabe comedy because having not caught the uh, head villain in the first French Connection movie, Popeye Doyle follows the leads to Marseille in France. And while one would think he'd want to try to work with the French police force on this uh, joint operation, instead... He basically puts on the hat of ugly American (laughs) and insults everybody he encounters, continues to call French people frogs, even though he's now in France. Yeah. What in the first movie came off as a realistic look at a gritty cop who was not so concerned about people's rights and the rules. Here, he just comes off, frankly, as an idiot, because <laughs> he's in this environment, and he, he, he doesn't adjust at all, like a bull in a china shop starts busting heads and doesn't know a word of French, <laughs> and so this first part seems to be played for comedy, but it, it, it doesn't work for me.
0: I was very, very surprised when I saw this movie because
1: The French Connection is one of the most
0: enjoyable, as well as one of the greatest films ever made. So I was very surprised to find the first third absolutely intolerable. (laughs) First off, it makes a great statement that, in fact, this film should have been called The French Connection, colon seconds because (laughs) it is so much about ladling in your your quote-unquote favorite dish from french connection and getting a whole heap of that thing have you guys ever seen the hangover films and wanted to go well i want two hours just about zach alphanakis's character (laughs) and you, you give a moment you realize how absolutely disastrous that would be that's what the first third of, the, of this film is like because Popeye Doyle fits perfectly in the dirty, chaotic world of New York. And as someone who has to do these desperate measures in such a desperate scenario that there was presented in Friedkin's film. However, you take his sense of obnoxious, rule-breaking behavior and you play it for humor – does not work because he has no part of him that is sympathetic in any way. It, like you had said, he is a, an epitome of the ugly American. Scene after scene after scene, come across as the absolute worst examples of prank TV shows, such as Candid Camera, mm-hmm. that you have ever seen, where it literally is just, a set the camera of Gene Hackman walking down a road and just yelling at people in their cars and then just sort of improvising some sort of, re- uh, of re- an angry reaction. It's like, all right, well, the hell with you. I'm going <laughs> to ask, go over here. And honestly, I kind of think part of Hackman's performance shows this disdain. His every moment in this film is Filled with disdain for everyone. Not just the people he's pursuing, but his fellow cops, the French people he's interacting, the people the people who won't drink of him instantly, the people who won't respond to him, even though he's yes, yelling them questions in English. And in one of the movie's lowest points, he literally is asking a smiling, goofy French suspect, can you ask him uh, why do you pick your feet in Plekeepsie? Which is, honestly, to me it's Gene Hackman saying... Yeah, I don't give a shit. I, 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 like this is th- That's my catchphrase. Right, it was a,
1: I said my catchphrase. Can I fucking go back to my trailer yeah. now? It was a callback, you know, you feel lucky, punk. Uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, imagine, but, yeah, imagine
0: Clint Eastwood if you had a movie called Dirty Harry Goes to Vegas and he's at a slot <laughs> machine saying, do you feel lucky, punk? Right. That's how completely, tonally inappropriate this is. Yeah.
1: Now, I, I don't blame any of this on Gene Hackman. I think Gene Hackman is giving the appropriate performance for what is happening in the script. What is happening in the script, though, is completely ridiculous and so far removed from the tone of the first movie that it really clarifies that the first French Connection did not need a sequel. Every bit of this movie is kind of saying, we are not really interested in pursuing the story of the French Connection. So what does the movie care about? It's a completely different thing uh, as it moves forward because Popeye Doyle is captured by the drug dealers and Fernando Ray, and they want to get information out of him uh, as to why he's there. So they hook him on heroin. He ends up telling them, which is basically that I'm the only guy who recognizes you, which is not that big a scoop, frankly. Right. He's uh, rescued and then has to go through a a cold turkey withdrawal process. Now, I just described that in a few seconds, and you might imagine that's a, a scene that might take up 10 minutes before we move on. But no, this is an entire third of the film. This is like a good half hour plus. Gene Hackman gets to do some great acting. It's just acting in the wrong movie because now none of this is about Popeye Doyle. This is now about Gene Hackman getting to do a big, dramatic cold turkey sequence yeah no kidding it's almost like he should have renamed himself to
0: danny doyle because it's literally gene hackman doing the train spotting withdrawal (laughs) sequence and you're right it is another level on acting and something that we hadn't seen from hackman's character up to this point but once again the stupid stupid gyrations to get there are are just awful for you to contemplate you really need to turn your brain off to just go i just want to see gene hackman's acting clinic on how to do a a drug withdrawal right (laughs) because in a scene that would be right out of a james bond parody the bad guys have him to rights and instead of killing him they decide. Well, we're just going to ruin your reputation by making you a, by making you a drug addict. I mean,
1: that's that's ridiculous. Well, they were they did it in order to try to get inform to to make him more amenable to giving out information. Of
0: course, of course. But once you realize that no more information was forthcoming, right. then you don't just leave him lying on the street. Like, what's the point? Put
1: a bullet, pull a bullet right, in his head. Because. Then what might happen is he might come back and blow up your hotel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, <laughs> right, exactly. Is his once he recovers, his, his uh, he gives a phone call to his officers and say, "Oh, hey, this I do remember this one carpet from the place where I was being held to get these drugs in the first place, and you better call the fire department." To which he takes a gas can walks to this re- through this restaurant walks in this three story tenement pours gas everywhere sets the place on fire causes god how god knows how many people to be hurt or killed to say nothing of the fire spreading our hero, ladies and gentlemen. Honestly, this film almost seems like a propaganda for an ex to have an extradition treaty for France more than any sort
1: of entertainment. <laughs> and again, if you haven't seen William Friedkin's The French Connection, see it. It's fantastic. It's possibly the first realistic street level cop movie where everything is completely believable. Mm-hmm. And it just has a ring of truth that has influenced cop dramas ever since. Mm. French Connection 2 throws that out the window. We finally do, as we approach the climax, get to something that looks and feels a little like a French Connection movie. It basically involves an extended foot chase instead of a car chase. As Popeye Doyle finally has the Fernando Rey character in his sights this
0: also adds to a really interesting innovation for frankenheimer in that maybe the first example of shaky cam or mm-hmm. from his perspective you see him pushing his hands pushing people out of the way or him leaping over fences and, and so it gives this kinetic energy and by and just by sheer virtue of highlighting doyle's dogged insistence on pursuit while completely muting those parts where he has to open his mouth or talk to anybody or require him to make any attempt to act like a decent human being towards anyone, once those go away, then it gets that French Connection energy over in the last ten minutes. But alas... Yeah, and
1: then the movie's over. <laughs> yes.
0: it's uh, It ends in a moment as sudden and direct as the original endings was poignant and ambiguous.
1: So Frankenheimer looks at criminal activity of a much greater and more dramatic sort in Black Sunday from 1977. Robert Shaw plays an Israeli Mossad agent who gets wind of a deadly plot organized by the terrorist group Black September. The film shows his struggles as the plot is set in motion, including the involvement of a former war hero pilot played by Bruce Dern. This
0: is a very fascinating film when it came out. That, due to events in our history, is now an incredibly strange film to consider. It's not a spoiler to say that the terrorist plot involves taking an explosive and transporting it via blimp to the Super Bowl. It was in the poster. Exactly. However, what might be surprising when you see the movie today
1: is how on board everyone was for this kind of idea. We need to put this in the context of the 70s disaster movie cycle, because... It, it fits in there. The, the started with the airport and the Poseidon adventure and was reaching its apex around the time of uh, the towering Inferno about skyscrapers catching on fire and burning down. And Black Sunday is kind of the tail end of this movement. So it does seem more jarring and disturbing to us now in a post 9-11 world but i i sense that maybe in 1977 it was a lot more standard from what was going on in the theaters
0: the filming of this terrorist attack is done with the complete and total support of the national football league And the Miami Dolphins,
1: from where the stadium, from where this event was supposed to take place. And also Goodyear, the Blimp Company who apparently Frankenheimer had developed a good relationship with in the making of Grand Prix, they basically allowed their blimp to be used as a potential terrorist tool in this film. Yeah, it's amazing. I looked at some of the details, and apparently their one stipulation was they just didn't want if a bomb was to
0: go off for the words Goodyear to be written (laughs) where the (laughs) explosion was to erupt from the words Goodyear. (laughs) Right. That was just a little bit too far. But the amount of cooperation they had in using that, oh, no, it's our craft that will be used to slaughter all these people is amazing to see, as is footage of an actual Super Bowl games and crowd scenes from Super Bowls were used in background for this film. And actually, the actors, uh, including Robert Shaw himself,
2: were
1: filmed running down the sidelines during actual games. They disguised their cameras as CBS television cameras, so it looked like they were just part of the regular Super Bowl filming. But all this is stuff that, that would never be allowed to this extent if they tried it again today right now we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here because of just the sheer astounding absurdity
0: of this kind of climax to look at the beginnings of this movie actually are this considerably more grounded
1: political thriller if the french connection kind of had these three parts that didn't work together. This seems to have two very separate parts, and I would mm-hmm. maintain they don't really work together either. Black September was an actual real-life terrorist organization. They were the ones yes. responsible for the uh, Munich slaughter of the Israeli athletes, and we start by following this group, which in, in this film is uh, kind of a lot more international. The The group of terrorists seem to be one from every country. (laughs) Right. And
0: and, and it harkens back to like how in in films like from Death's Wish they had the (laughs) rainbow
1: coalition of gang members from every ethnicity. And that leads to kind of one of the eccentricities of the film, which is this is (laughs) Accent-a-Palooza. Everybody's got some crazy accent going on and usually the default is a German accent. Now Robert Shaw is supposed to be israeli and i could could identify right away that whatever he was doing with his voice was in no way an israeli accent finally i kind of realized they meant for him to be a a german immigrant to israel the movie doesn't explain it it just has an israeli character with a german accent Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he has a fairly sexist
0: attitude to boot because In an early scene, he mows down everyone as part of a a mission that him and his squad does until he espies a
1: lady in the shower and leaves her alone. And unfortunately, that turned out to be the head terrorist. (laughs) Yes. One of
0: the really interesting things to look at this film is as this may be the biggest attempt to give a feminist slant, Towards terrorist activity that's been really put to film. (laughs) The character that Robert Shaw spares not only organizes this terrorist plot, but she's continually fighting her bullheaded superiors to point out how capable she is in terms of carrying this off and that she is exclusively uh, the person to handle the agent in the US to perpetuate this. But when we finally see her with this agent, played by Bruce Dern, at points the conversation between her and her American asset come across as sort of the bickerings of a married couple, (laughs) despite the fact that the subjects they're talking about are blowing things up. It's very much like the Mary Tyler Moore of what does a lady got to do <laughs> in this world of trying to make sure your terrorist plan is successful.
1: It's also a little reminiscent of Angela Lansbury and Lawrence Harvey in The Manchurian Candidate mm. in the uh, basically the female handler of the far dimmer male side who's going to, in essence, pull the trigger. And Bruce Stern has made a career out of playing people of let's say uh less than stable uh mental <laughs> states but he may have outdone himself here he he is at full durn the entire way his eyes are as bugging out as they have ever been and he just turns up the crazy to 11 <laughs> One of the strangest reasons that this movie is deficient,
0: it ties into something that George Lucas said when people were giving revisions to his script for The Empire Strikes Back. He was noted to have said, you know, guys, it doesn't have to be this good. (laughs) And that's just the strangest thing, is that the first half is a lot more serious than the end of Black Sunday. It's
1: like... You have the day of the jackal, and it turns into the swarm. At the
2: end.
1: <laughs> that, that, that's so true. And, and it really sets the movie off balance because you are prepared now after this big setup for this tight thriller. And then once you get to the Super Bowl sequence, it becomes Roger Moore, James Bond territory too, mm. with Robert Shaw trying to down the blimp from a helicopter and eventually even landing on the blimp mm-hmm. uh, shots of the panicked crowds right out of those Irwin Allen movies. There's just a moment in the film where the tone shifts so drastically that it really ruins its opportunity to either be a solid thriller that it wanted to be at the beginning or a campy disaster movie that it wants to be at the end.
0: Yes. And it's incredibly weird to me right now to think about how this film has disappeared from public consciousness. Very few people now heard of black Sunday Everybody knows Jaws. Mm -hmm. This despite the fact that in our world, our chances of having a shark attack and the times of the day, more importantly, that we think about having a shark, about a shark attacking us are infinitesimally smaller than the threats of terrorist activity, (laughs) right? So you would just think just by virtue of the subject, it would, it would have at least resonated as a gigantic mistake.
1: And yet it just disappeared. And that may have something to do with uh, when it was released, because it uh, was sucked into the black hole that so many other 1977 movies got sucked into when Star Wars came out. That could be, yes. (laughs) But I also wonder if that serious first half of the film didn't drive the crowd who wanted the escapism away. Mm Mm-hmm. I can't be sure of the reason, but it's really
0: fascinating to me that, in fact, such a film with such a budget, such a huge level of cooperation with the NFL, and with such a gigantic issue that still plagues us today, manages to effectively not be part of a conversation. Very surprising. How do you make a whole blimp
1: (laughs) and a whole Super Bowl full of people disappear? Just as a side note, this was the uh, second blimp movie of the 70s disaster cycle because a couple years earlier the Hindenburg movie came out, uh, which was a, a gigantic flop, so perhaps people were also somewhat blimped out
0: Uh, they could be blimped out it's nice to see that hollywood still continues its fine tradition of finding an a concept and then making two movies (laughs) about the same concept in quick succession
1: (laughs) now i do want to talk about one aspect of the film that i think is a, a great success which is the score and you mentioned Jaws, and, and I mentioned Star Wars, and, and yes, in the middle of those two, John Williams did yes. the score for Black Sunday, and it is, a, from just a score point of view, an exciting thriller constantly driving forward, full of suspense, but that's really only in the score. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you watch the film, if you can just picture...
0: John Williams rolling up his sleeves and uh, opening up his special case to have his extra strength conductor wand because he is doing absolute master craftsman level of work and effort to just make this movie as rousing and engaging as possible through the sheer will of the music that he tries to put up. Now, speaking of more 70s trends... Including the Jaws trend, Frankenheimer made a movie called Prophecy in
3: nineteen seventy nine. I don't want to be a tiger, cause tigers play it too rough. I don't want to be a lion, cause lions ain't the kind you love enough.
0: It's an eco-horror film about the environmental havoc resulting from a paper mill's dumping of mercury in a main forest. Conflicts between the mill's management and local Indian tribes are only made worse by the discovery... That the chemicals are mutating the wildlife and deadly attacks by a giant
1: mutant bear seem to give credence to an old Indian prophecy. Right, so while Jaws is clearly the predecessor to this series of giant animal movies like the white buffalo and orca to come out in its wake, I do think prophecy shares a lot more commonality with Orca in their tendency to take themselves very, very seriously while presenting us with a very, very silly monster. Mmm, where's Richard Harris when you need it? Because of (laughs) considering his ultra-serious look into the eye of the giant whale in Orca. Yes, instead we have Robert Foxworth and Talia Shire who insert themselves into this uh, nonsense. Robert Foxworth's closest visual approximation, unfortunately,
0: is to the lead singer of the Spin Doctors. (laughs) Which, to be fair, does make it a more interesting film when you think that the Spin Doctors are under attack. (laughs) See, this film, I totally agree with you. This film has this sense of self-seriousness towards things that look silly but become more silly because everyone is treating them with such just dour portentousness. The conflict between the Native Americans and the local workers at this paper mill have a conflagration whose seriousness gets unnerved when it results in a fight between a guy with a
1: chainsaw and the guy with an axe. Right, which is further undermined by the wild raccoon attack. (laughs) That uh, is the first sign that something is wrong with the animals in the forest. Exactly. Uh, Apparently this uh, paper mill has been leaking mercury all over the place, which makes animals gigantic. So we end up with a big salmon that eats a duck. Yes, (laughs) (laughs)
0: that nowadays when you see it, harkens back to the three-eyed fish of Simpsons lore who's hanging around the (laughs) nuclear power plant.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And finally, there are the the creatures themselves. I'm not even sure what they were thinking (laughs) design-wise because it's basically a skinned bear that's kind of slimy and pink and and looks a little... has like pig elements and like other animals mixed in with it. Yes. It's certainly weird looking, but it can't carry a movie. Speaking of carry, it's even worse when we meet a a little slimy pink bear cub that our heroes have to now carry around with them because then I'm realizing what we're basically watching is is the eraser head baby of mutant bears. (laughs) This harkens
0: back to an enhancement of what is a wonderfully terrible movie called The Giant Claw. Mm -hmm. The Giant Claw was supposed to be a, a large flying monster that threatens people, and it is notoriously known for when the actors were told to react in horror to this fearsome beast approaching them, They did too good a job because they were told and given pictures and descriptions of what the monster would look like. And so they reacted very appropriately to what that would look like in theory. Unfortunately, in practice, they ran out of money (laughs) and couldn't make the monster look at it. So they used an incredibly crappy bug eyed bird puppet to be. the. It's it is wonderfully hilarious to watch. And Prophecy actually does this one better because imagine if someone used a crappy puppet and clearly spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars
1: to depict something that looks like crap. (laughs) (laughs) There are, are many bad movie moments in this, but there is also... A classic bad movie moment, there is a scene that reach a, reaches a level of unintentional hilarity. Yes that uh, I would suggest nobody to watch this film, but I would suggest everybody to YouTube this scene, which is the bear attack on the uh, family of campers. This is yeah. the first bear attack of the film. The young boy in the family is in a uh, plush sleeping bag. Uh, and when, the, when he sees the bear attacking his family, he, without getting out of the sleeping bag, attempts to escape by hopping away. <laughs> yep. <laughs> he is soon met <laughs> with a mutant bear claw <laughs> yep. that sends a sleeping bag hurtling into a nearby rock. And exploding into feathers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There has been these images that Frankenheimer managed to make that were so intriguing and, and astounding for their tales in his earlier films. But here, the kind of propulsive nature focuses in perfectly to give us a moment which is completely unforgettable in its sheer batshit ludicrousness. <laughs> it's one of these glorious moments in movie history where you can't believe what you're seeing. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing about Frankenheimer is when it comes to those kind of unforgettable, he isn't quite done yet.
2: I'll tell you
1: He'll move on to a more familiar genre with 1986's 52 Pickup. Based on the Elmore Leonard novel of the same name, this stars Roy Scheider as a rich industrialist being blackmailed with a video of him cheating on his wife, played by Anne Margaret. Blackmail escalates into murder as Scheider confronts the three crooks. And follows them into their world of porn, strip clubs, and prostitutes.
0: Now, I found this movie a really cool take on the criminal story because where the French connection and Get Carter and other films of a similar ilk and the 70s had a gritty tone to them, this was sort of a, while well, not getting to like live and die in LA levels, it's kind of a chrome plated a shinier, a brighter take of a noir
1: story. Yet I would also say it's a sleazier one. This is a canon film. Uh-huh. The infamous company known for B-movie Ultraviolent action films that tend to star Charles Bronson and Chuck Norris. Uh, it kind of became the 80s version of the Roger Corman house. Mm-hmm. And while they had a few prestige projects, of which I think this was one of them, a lot of the canon output is pretty uh, questionable. It kind of reminded me of those early Jonathan Demme movies that we we talked about in that podcast, like uh, *Caged Heat*, which which was a uh, women in prison film. And because they were Roger Corman films, the nudity was there as a rule. It had to be there, and yeah. it had to be emphasized. That doesn't, by the way, make the the movie bad. I actually think this this one's pretty good. But it does have a bit of a weird vibe. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually quite
0: attracted to that vibe. But maybe part of it is because when I was growing up and getting into films, part of my gateways were these action movies of Norris and uh, Charles Bronson that you had described. Mm-hmm. So I approached 52 Pickup before I had seen many legendary noir films or more reserved thrillers, I got an impression from the other direction. Mm-hmm. Here's something that's trafficking in something that is usually just stupid ex- trash that is just done to give images of sex and violence and, and, and cheap excitement. But it's done into service for both a sophisticated take of a main character and not only in his moral conflicts, but also in how he uses his skills to upend and subvert the actions of the people who are blackmailing him. I literally think this is an enhancement of the kind of um, family fighting backstory
1: that the fugitive manages to do in terms of a guy in pursuit story. Well, that's that's a really complimentary uh, comparison, and I will to... add that it doesn't reach
0: that <laughs> level.
1: But mm-hmm. I think I have a heightened appreciation for films that attempt to aim higher than their more earthy roots. Let's put it. That well, way. I'll tell you what I do like about this film is its attention to character. You have three villains played by John Glover, Clarence Williams III, and Robert Trevor, and. Unlike most genre films, we get a lot of scenes from the point of view of the villains as Scheider, through various mechanisms starts to get them to distrust each other. And they're also very different personalities, especially Trevor, who's this weaselly porn guy who's pretty much used for comic relief and might not really be on board with the full level of uh, violence of their Mm -hmm. blackmail plot.
2: Yeah,
0: and I was very taken by John Glover, a person who has this great combination of both being in there to get the money but also on a level that he wants to do right by the being the leader of the group, by keeping the group together. He feels some sort of responsibility for that. But at the same time, he has a sort of high and low type spike of resentment mm-hmm. that it forms a carefully
1: hidden yet occasionally white hot burst of anger towards Roy Scheider's character. Right, and, and he gets to play a number of notes because there are scenes when he's the uh, masked gunman with all the cards in his hand, but there's a scene where Scheider finds out who he is. He's actually a film projectionist, who Roy Scheider corners by surprise Mm. and he has to literally pretend he's not who he is. And so there's some interesting dynamics there. There's also a great scene for Clarence Williams III where Scheider gets the better of him and instead of uh, killing him or getting him arrested, basically just plants these ideas of what his colleagues might be up to. And Williams has just this great shift reactions from the earlier scene
0: Mm -hmm. this is super cool in that it traffics in a a blackmail plot and is driven by revenge but what's great is that the the part of the point of the blackmail is to end the the main character's life Mm -hmm. and what is the revenge is that he manages to upend the lives of these criminals by messing with each one of their heads and the way that they descend into chaos through his actions is a really great take on getting not
1: justice but a certain set a very unique set of retribution and that leads to the great casting of Roy Scheider. Mm -hmm. He has the ability to ground almost any fantastical situation into something that looks like reality, from dealing with a a, a 25-foot shark to a over-armored helicopter and blue thunder Mm -hmm. to being bob fossey roy scheider is one of these understated actors that it's really easy to take for granted and if you think about these kind of revenge movies especially coming out of the canon studio you might be tempted to try to cast this role in a standard action hero way but instead Scheider makes his battle more of an intellectual one now this changes a bit at the end when he gets a little bit too macgyvery for my taste okay right but but right. other than that i think Scheider's really solid
0: i think you made a great point about Scheider. in 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 52 pickup he does double duty maybe triple duty because on basically it's a very solid performance but in addition to that he has a charisma and presence that both manages to give the picture more legitimacy than its sleazy plot and setting would suggest that it would. Mm -hmm. And in addition, gives his character more legitimacy for us in the audience to care about him upon fixing the relationship with his wife and be drawn in towards being engaged on his attempts to one up these criminal elements. And that very element you describe helps out the French Connection series because his dynamic of grounding, of being more of an everyman, is such an effective counterweight to Popeye Doyle's antics in the original movie, being able to support him and providing the periodic comment Dr. Watson-like commentary when Doyle has gone
1: too far. Mm-hmm. There is a, another parallel to French Connection 2 in 52 Pickup, hmm. which is that when Anne Margaret is kidnapped near the end, she's subdued by being hooked on heroin. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so many films. It seems to be may... a go-to for Frankenheimer. <laughs> that, that, that's
0: right. Maybe if you're charitable, you can say that Frankenheimer was honoring uh, Janet Lay's. Path through Touch of Evil instead. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of building off previous material, the next one we're going to be talking about was Frankenheimer's take on an often remade tale in The Island of Dr. Moreau from 1996. This island adventure is the most recent adaptation of the H.G. Wells novel about a mad scientist, this time played by Marlon Brando, who has discovered a way to crossbreed animals and humans. David Thewlis is a UN negotiator stranded at sea who finds himself prisoner of this island of men and beasts,
1: but finds that there's an ever-shrinking difference between the two. So there's a pretty good version of this story, and this movie is not it. There was a (laughs) movie called Island of the Lost Souls that came out in 1932 with uh, Bela Lugosi that did the Wells adaptation right. There was also a version in the 70s with Frankenheimer regular Burt Lancaster. I have not seen it, so I don't know. This one, however, is infamously bad. Frankenheimer came into a film already in production. Low-budget horror director Richard Stanley, who I particularly liked from a 1992 film called Dust Devil, was set to direct. And there is a documentary film about all the -the behind-the-scenes chaos that uh, dealt with this original vision being replaced by the Frankenheimer vision. It's called lost souls, the doomed journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. Richard Stanley is a very unique director. He
0: has various issues with conferring with studios and other creative people involved in the movie. Even in Dust Devil, which I also enjoy on the commentary track, he repeatedly says about how this particular stunt or this particular explosion nearly killed two or three people and you they were failed to mention. <laughs> He's not really a rules guy. No, yeah. no. He, in fact, I would say he is one of the most disreputable directors in history, not in terms of the subjects, but in terms of how... You really can't believe or trust anything he says. I think I would sooner trust Alejandro Jodorowsky (laughs) to do something according to what he says than what what Richard Stanley would do. He brings this quality even to documentaries. He made a documentary which ostensibly was about the Nazi regime, which turns into this sort of monologue upon how they were doing occult rituals to summon up demons. (laughs) any production of film that has this guy involved has two strikes against it being
1: successful and the ball is on the way. (laughs) And this was the one chance he would have had at a big studio project. Marlon Brando was already involved and apparently early casting included Bruce Willis and James Woods. Mm -hmm. So, there might be a better movie than the one we're about to discuss about how this all went to hell. But the bottom line is our guy Frankenheimer took over the reins. And one of the impediments that he had to immediately deal
0: with was Brando because Brando had supported Richard Stanley due to the Stanley's tale that his, one of his, Ancestors was the inspiration for Joseph Conrad's character in Heart of Darkness, which was the inspiration for Colonel Kurtz, which <laughs> had enamored Brando to this director. Now, whether whether that's true or not, the fact that Stanley's exit from the series had then soured on any attempt for Brando to accommodate this new director. But it turns out that the major impediment of this was Val Kilmer, who came in as one of the major roles and his immediate demand was that to be in 40% less days of shooting (laughs) causing them to alter it. So he played us the other character who had less uh, pages of the script.
1: Yes. It's very unusual for another actor of a movie with later day Marlon Brando in it to match Brando for just level of difficulty of working with, but apparently Kilmer gave it his best shot. Oh, and, and his shot was phenomenally successful. Like, m- multiple
0: times there were days that were stalled because neither one would leave their trailer first, <laughs> got delaying production for hours and hours on end. Eventually, Kilmer had become so obnoxious on the set that when inquiring about Val Kilmer later, Frankenheimer remarked, I
1: wouldn't cast this guy <laughs> in
0: the Val Kilmer story. <laughs>
1: Leading the cast, though, is David Thewlis, who gave one of, I think, the greatest performances in all of modern film with his portrayal of Street Urchin Johnny in Mike Lee's Naked. That was absolutely monumental. And coming out just a few years later, I was kind of disheartened to see Thulis in a generic. Um, I can't even say action movie role because he's a really passive character. He yeah. kind of just lets things happen to him. Yes, exactly.
0: A come down is an understatement when you look at a role that was originally meant for Bruce Willis. <laughs> Imagine that persona and giving that to Thulis, who I agree with you is endlessly a fascinating character in Mike Lay's Naked. But what he is not, he is not an enjoyable character, Right. he's not an entertaining character, and he's not a character who, were he to find himself in an awful situation, you'd be rooting for him to get out of that situation. He has this particular set of mannerisms that is great for a wild-eyed, despondent intellectual in Naked, but much like how Nicolas Cage fails in the remake of... The Wicker Man, because it's supposed to be about a guy in a strange environment who's miscast because he's stranger than everything in the environment. In a similar way, Slewis doesn't work because he's as skitterish and odd as many of the actual monster beast men <laughs> in this in this tale. In fact, the biggest detriments of Island of Dr. Merle for me, when I'm watching it, can be encapsulated by a quote from uh, Doctor Strangelove, wherein a character says, "Well, I think the human element seems to fail us here, <laughs> because there's three main humans in the movie, and they all fail miserably in completely different ways." It's Lewis, I've already described why I think he falls incredibly far short. Val Kilmer, for all the drama we're hearing behind the scenes, it's with one exception, he's pretty bland in this one. He still has his spiky hair as Iceman from Top Gun, and despite the fact that his character is meant to be a jaded scientist who had followed to this island to see Demoro's experiments, his every action and behavior appears to be that of a dude bro who (laughs) is uh, in these kind of jungle adventures in between base jumping and rock climbing
1: is the exception when he starts to do marlon brando impersonations <laughs> <laughs> yes that's a
0: very very wild moment in the <laughs> film because as wild as that imitation is i absolutely endorse him for doing it because brando's performance is one of the grand WTF things <laughs> of bad movie history for the ages. From the way he appears in a cross-between if the Pope Mobile was a Jeep, <laughs> pasted in white with sunglasses and a graduation mortarboard white cap. <laughs> to how he spends so much of the time in the movie wearing moo moo's and different colored headdresses. <laughs> To just this particular kind of overbite that makes him look like he's trying to do a, perhaps a William Buckley or Alistair Sim impersonation. (laughs) Every moment that Brando's on screen... My eyes are alight in amazement by what on earth does this guy think he's doing
1: yeah there are there are a number of amazing moments like that, one of which uh caught the attention of Mike Myers when he was uh making the Austin Powers film because one of the creatures on the island is basically a Dr. Moreau mini-me. Yes. And it's the, the, this tiny, dwarfish-deformed creature who dresses like Moreau in every scene, and probably in the, in, in, in the ultimate scene, Moreau is playing the piano, and there's a tiny little piano on his piano with his <laughs> mini-me playing it. <laughs> Apparently, uh, Mike Myers saw the film and says, Dr. Evil has to have one of these.
0: <laughs> it is... Those imagery is just great by itself, but Frankenheimer is showing this in a big swooping manner, (laughs) as it's majestically showing this little guy having a exploding sleeping bag of feathers is got
1: nothing (laughs) on this.
0: Salvador Dali's
1: (laughs) Unshan Andalou almost has a competition just in this alone. And there's even further weirdness because uh, Brando's character is apparently very sensitive to the sun, which is why he's always covered in this uh, white sunscreen. But also he wears this hat that just looks like, oh, Brando's wearing a funny hat. But no, no, it turns out it's a receptacle for people to pour ice into so that he can have ice on his head at any given moment. (laughs) Exactly. He brings this up by sort of his assistant distance uh please adjust the ice
0: calorimeter level to which that the ice calorimeter level means you pour ice in, into the top of his head <laughs> very which scientific leads a, yeah. which leads to a line on the mystery science theater descended rift tracks to wit it's never too late to see the stupidest goddamn thing <laughs> you've ever seen. <laughs> but actually, I think even the piano, the one thing that rivals the piano might even surpass it is a moment where a bunch of the Beast Men, having gone rogue, are in the ground floor by the piano, and suddenly the lights turn on, and Brando's character comes in, and what I can only describe as him trying to sort of channel a cross between Blanche Dubois and Truman Capone. (laughs) He's carrying a tray of biscuits, and this ostensible scientist is completely unaware of the immediate danger he's in. Decides to both regale these monsters to have some snacks, and then ask them if they would like a little George Gershwin. <laughs> then he sets the piano
1: and tries to put in a tries to put in a tune because music tames the savage beast. I guess. <laughs> it, spoiler alert: It doesn't. It doesn't.
0: It it it, right. it really doesn't. Um, and that that ties into one of the just other parts that the that the mo- makes the movie such a great epic disaster is that these scientists and would-be knowledgeable people are such colossal screw-ups. The most basic levels of security or principles that they claim to espouse are shown to be completely, they're completely incompetent at carrying things out.
1: Right, so part of the problem is the animal makeup effects rival the uh, human performances in levels of ridiculousness. I just kept looking at the prosthetics and going, oh, well, that's weird. Because I was thinking, well, am I being brought out of this movie just because of bad special effects? And, and I don't th- think it's so because the original Planet of the Apes had just as primitive prosthetic effects. But because the narrative was so strong, I bought into it. I was able to look past any issues with masks and makeups and whatnot. But here, because the story is so nothing and the performances are so ridiculous, I also just kept getting distracted by what I thought was goofy-looking animal masks. People in half-animal outfits,
0: wearing tuxedos, firing automatic weapons to mow each other down, is never not going to be inherently ludicrous, (laughs) wonderful to behold, and leads any story that's starting to do completely irrelevant
1: well it 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 really fits in with what we said about frankenheimer at the beginning Mm -hmm. or with what you said about frankenheimer at the beginning which is that for better or for worse he is constantly just going for it yes and if he's going in the wrong direction like he is here he's he's gonna go all the way yes so 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 wrong
0: if prophecy was just a perfect presentation with the occasional bursts of overdone nonsense. This is an overflowing (laughs) buffet (laughs) of the stuff. It actually gets you tired by the time you're watching by going, oh my God, it's, it's too much. It's too much like Halloween candy Mm -hmm. on November 1st. You get a giant rush of, Wondrous astonishment from watching Doctor Moreau, but
1: you also end up with a headache afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, so now we're near the end of Frankenheimer's career, and after something this ridiculous, can he uh, come back and deliver what he's best known for? Mm-hmm. He's been flying off in all sorts of different directions in the films
0: we've been talking about. He gets to one of his most locked in and composed and restrained films, I think.
1: and that would be Ronin from 1998. Robert De Niro stars as a highly skilled mercenary in France who rendezvous with an international unit of hand-picked criminals in order to steal the unknown contents of a well-guarded steel briefcase. Between distrust within the group and face-offs with heavily armed competitors, gunfire, chases, and mayhem fill this action thriller. (laughs) there is some mayhem
0: and there is some great action and great thrills in this movie but one of the things I was most astounded by when I first saw Ronin and when I watched it again for this podcast is just how well composed and restrained its sensibility that this film is this is not a film about maniacal changes in tone like the end of black friday or every 10 minutes of island of dr moreau this is incredibly dedicated professionals who have this complex plot and they and it's just about the mechanics of getting this plot in in operation and dealing with the various crises as they come up using every ounce of the skills that they have acquired.
1: Yes, it's the return of Frankenheimer as an A-list action director. He the choreography here is just excellent. The movie looks great. It recalls some great heist movies like Michael Mann's Thief in its yes. uh, in its hawksian interest in just pulling off the job and looking at the details of the job this is clearly not the first movie about a group of people trying to hijack a truck or steal a suitcase Mm -hmm. but man the style is there and you've got an a-list of cast as well you've got robert de niro Kind of nearing the end of him taking himself seriously as an actor with a great supporting cast like Natasha McElhone, Stellan Starsgard, and Jonathan Price. Again, for a director that in his later career, I think tends to lean towards the sloppy, this one's really tight. Yeah, it is so delightfully
0: precise while sacrificing very little of the kind of energy that Frankenheimer is able to imbue into a scene a thriller sequence or a car chase of which there are two magnificent ones all timers i would say Mm -hmm. the latter one involving cars navigating the incredibly narrow streets of paris it's breathtaking to watch this stuff, but I think it even goes further to get to the kind of feeling and sensibility that's brought out in this remarkable French director known as Jean-Pierre Melville. Melville did a whole series of films like Le Cirque Rouge, Les Doulos, and especially in a film called Le Samurai which also inspired a great many films of director John Woo. Melville explored this particular sensibility of people who moved through the world with an empty sense of direction, except in the fact that they had a set of skills and they could do this job really well. In this way, there's no coincidence that it is titled Ronin, which is the term you gave towards samurai who have lost their master and thus their sense of direction. One of the most notable things on, in the story is, is they need to get a case, but it is never mentioned what's in the case. I mean, I only hope Marcellus's soul is all right.
2: <laughs>
0: but that's part of the point of the movie is that it's not in the character's interest to know what is the case in fact i think even a character points out it's better off that we don't know because knowing might cause us
1: to do our jobs less well right but it is a constant source of frustration for de niro's character because he wants every single element of the job to be predictable he doesn't want loose ends and the fact that they don't know what's in the case for him is a real loose end yeah as is the presence of sean bean as an ira terrorist member of the group who is revealed by de niro to be just incompetent right he's so impetuous and enthusiastic Mm -hmm. towards these
0: old pros and de niro gives him a phenomenal uprating when he suggests a particular crossfire which says are you gonna put two people on
1: opposite sides (laughs) they're gonna go and shoot at each other and then he finally undoes bean with his placement of a cup of coffee (laughs)
2: yes
0: yeah so well done this on top of everything else the restraint allows for this epic sense of cool Mm -hmm. to come in including de niro has one of the most badass lines i've ever heard in a film where sean bean is so enthusiastically asking hey were you were you used to be in the cia did you kill anybody was it what was it like to kill someone did you actually end up killing anyone Nero's response was simply,
1: "I hurt a guy's feelings once." (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah, part of the the Ronin concept of the masterless samurai, it's kind of loosely portrayed here because these characters don't really require masters to begin with, and they're very much operating in their own interests. But that leads to an entire series of double crosses. Yes. And one of the things that that I find kind of amusing about the film as it unfolds is that we constantly have to readjust who we think the villains are. Right. Because every time we think somebody is the main villain, they get killed. And then, so then there's another, oh, this is the main villain. Oh, they're gone too. So uh, unlike a lot of more standard action films, you're constantly kept guessing about a lot of things all the way up to the end.
0: Exactly right. The script is so brilliant at doing that to a level that harkens back to the kind of way the tensions got ratcheted up in Seven Days in May. You're always getting a new bit, but a new twist too. And the result is to always keep you on edge, but never have it fly off into just sheer hysterics. right? But to just keep it purring, like the exquisite sound design of the engines of these cars in these chases. And I actually think Ronan takes the Melville sense of what does it mean to, quote-unquote, do the job And it pulls it in a direction that, to me, harkens back to the criminals in Reservoir Dogs. Hmm. One of the reasons that Reservoir Dogs is one of my favorite films is how not only do all the different characters in Reservoir Dogs have different motivations, but it seems the very styles of acting are so distinct right. and they mix together in this wonderful like stew where the flavors like coalesce and in Ronin I'm seeing the spy version of these different flavors because each of the people involved in this scheme all have their different approaches as you had said the Nero is the ultimate professional never letting go of just being dedicated toward the job right up to the fact that he's going to negotiate an operation to remove a bullet himself right (laughs) but jean reno is a great counterpoint to that because while incredibly capable in his own way he has a wry dour sense of humor and that in turn is contrasted with stellan starsgard who has a sense of bleak cynicism Mm -hmm. to why he does these actions and as these people double cross each other and the case falls from one hand into another you're cast into another philosophy of existential professionalism i guess the lack of better (laughs) word from one type of attitude on the job to another type of attitude
1: well this is where perfect casting comes into play Mm. and is same as with Reservoir Dogs. Yes. You, you get actors who create kind of a shorthand mm-hmm. because you're familiar with them, even if you don't know their names from some of their other roles. And even if you, you're not, they bring the experience of these previous roles so that you could identify these character types rightly or wrongly. Just by who the actor is and how they're embodying those roles. De Niro's doing here uh, the kind of role George Clooney became known for. The slick and uber-competent professional and just oozing cool. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And that's an apt term for this film.
0: It oozes cool... And I think it takes that concept of cool to just be phenomenally enjoyable as this thriller, but it takes the notion of coolness to this almost philosophical level in Ronan. In a guy who had we'd already described as putting the pedal to the metal on his cinematic accelerator in so many of these films, it's just amazing to see at this late part of his career a parts where all the components the performances the action the story and even the casting all fit together
1: in a great film match so it joins the big 5 if you're wanting to get into frankenheimer birdman of alcatraz the manchurian candidate 7 days in may the train seconds and ronin these are the films it's a great bunch of films and i'm so glad we had the chance to go through them and also some of his goofier offerings mm-hmm. yes in particular i'm a fan of when
0: movies can become horrifically wrong and i've found a great
1: level of anti-enjoyment on this score <laughs> in films such as know of dr moreau but i think it's telling that Frankenheimer directed one of your favorite films and one of my favorite films, but they're not the same film. Yours being Seconds. Exactly. In my case, it's The Manchurian Candidate.
0: Yes. I have a feeling that uh, for you guys listening, if you take a look at uh, some of these films that we had talked about, you may be able to find one of your favorites and it may not match one of ours. We here at the Directors Club would like to hear about what would be your favorite Frankenheimer Films, or what you think of our commentary on Frankenheimer's work. And to do that, you can give us an email at DirectorsClubPodcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club is found in multiple places all across the net, from iTunes at Directors Club Podcast, Spotify at Directors Club Podcast, Facebook Directors Club Podcast, Twitter DC Podcasts. And you can catch our episodes on our website at directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and hope to catch you again at another episode of The Director's Club.
3: They can make me do anything, Ben. Can't they? Anything. We'll see, kid. We'll see what they can do and we'll see what we can do. So the Red Queen is our baby. Take a look at this, kid. 52 of them. Take a good look at him, Raymond. Look at him, and while you're looking, listen. This is me, Marco, talking. Fifty-two Red Queens of me are telling you, you know what we're telling you? It's over. The links, the beautifully conditioned links, are smashed. They're smashed as of now because we say so. Because we say they ought to be smashed. We're busting up the joint, we're tearing out all the wires, we're busting it up so good. All the Queen's horses and all the Queen's men will never put old Raymond back together again. You don't work anymore. That's an order. Anybody invites you to a game of solitaire, you tell them sorry, Buster. The ball game is over.